the mic off. Oh, mic is on. Okay, I have no idea what's happening. What? Get more people to join. Share via. I have no clue what I'm doing. Twitter. Twitter. There it is. Join me. Like that? That's yeah. it? All right, we've got some people. Can you guys hear me? I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Can you guys hear? Oh, okay. We've got a. All right. Okay. Now, are you guys allowed to speak? I don't know how that works. We've got a bunch of people uh, doing thumbs up. You can all hear me. Can I get a thumbs up or get a quick view of speaker requests? All right. Uh, okay. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say yes. I have no idea what I'm doing. Hey, Chris. Yeah, we can hear you fine. Outstanding. All right. This is cool. All right. What do you guys want to talk about? Talk to me. What would you like to talk about, Gad? Well, I'd like to talk about, let's start with this, how Manchester City destroyed Arsenal today. Any, any soccer fans here? Yep, I'm going to the World Cup in three years in Kansas City, so you better believe it. <laughs> Is that right? All right. Uh, you mean you're going to the World Cup as a as, not as a player, as a as a fan? No, not my dreams. Maybe you know, just as a spectator. Is there I live in Omaha. Is there going to be a complimentary ticket for Doctor Goodlooks? Absolutely. Yeah. You're in Kansas City. Just north in Omaha, so about two and a half hours north. All right. Okay. Let's see how many. So, oh, uh, so how many people am I allowed to 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 allow to speak? How does that work? I'm allowing anybody. Is that okay? Well, you don't want to allow everybody at once. It's, it'll be pretty chaotic. But you can just okay. So allow a few people and then okay. take people off okay. as you go to. Oh, I see. Okay. Right now, I've got I think five people who've got speaker privilege. Uh, 73 people on Twitter are listening. Okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, now, what does this get uh, archived somewhere? So, in other words, would will people be able to listen to this if if they they're not if they're not with us now? Is anybody there? Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? Hi, Professor Sad. Um, I I can hear you. Um, my name's Daniel. I'm a student from Toronto and. Uh, I saw you were doing a Twitter live post, so I thought I'd uh, pop in and, and uh, introduce myself. I've been listening to you for a few years, so it's a pleasure. Oh, wonderful to hear from you. What are you, what are you studying in Toronto? I am at U of T. <laughs> I'm still there. Uh, one more year left, and I'm doing a major in economics with uh, two minors in uh, political science and history. Okay, and have you covered the part where uh, you have to indigenize economics and you have to discuss toxic masculinity <laughs> <laughs> or you haven't gotten that chapter well, yet. You know what? I, I'm I'm fortunate enough to say that out of the economics courses that I've taken, we have not gotten to that yet. All right. And hope hopefully hopefully not. Um, I I think for the most part, my experience at U of T, like particularly not in history or politics, like the economics department has gen generally been apolitical. I would say for the most part, right? Uh, which which is a good thing. Um, you know, obviously you have to be very wary about that. Um, there were some courses that I took, um, particularly in American history. Um, I feel it's best just not to mention any names or things like that. 
Um, but there was one instance with one professor who, who did get extremely political uh, in the wake of the Capitol riot and went on a tangent about like Trump and treason and 14th Amendment. And I thought that was probably one of the more egregious instances of a professor like going off the rails. Um, what was a big surprise to me um, this year is that I took a course in American politics. Again, I'm, I don't want to mention any names for, for everyone's sake. And the and I was a little worried that that course would kind of be similar to what had happened a couple of years ago when I did American history. And I was genuinely shocked that one of my one of the professor for that course, I think, was one of the, you know, kind of undercover. Like I could tell he felt uncomfortable saying everything that he believed in front of the class, mm. which was unfortunate. Um, and I know from our private discussions and office hours that, you know, there was a lot that I think he wanted to say a bit more overtly that he didn't feel comfortable doing because of how hostile the students, some of the students may be, which was really, really unfortunate. Um, but at least from what he did tell me is that he didn't at least have to lie in front of people. At least he stopped himself from lying, if he, even if he self-censored a bit. And I found that he really did try to approach otherwise controversial issues with complexity and nuance that it's just, I, I, I hate to say that I don't think many people of my age would be able to do. Got you. Well, best of luck with the rest of your degree. Nice seeing you here. And uh, make sure to tune in. If you can tomorrow, guys, this is for everybody. <clears throat> I'm doing a Ask Me Anything uh, on my YouTube channel uh, at 4 o'clock clock so if you can uh, if you're available make sure to join me there also i just announced a few minutes ago that i will be appearing uh, uh, a return uh, appearance on uh, greg gutfeld's late night show uh, i was a bit disheartened that many people wrote to me saying that now that tucker carlson is no longer on fox they are boycotting the channel i i hope that people don't do that i i can understand that people might be very disappointed that Tucker left. Believe me, I'm disappointed. Uh, you know, I, I've gotten to know Tucker personally. He, he's a lovely guy and he's a unique voice. But I hope that people don't, uh, you know, just stop stop watching otherwise interesting content just as a boycott measure. So please make sure to tune in. I think it's next Monday that I'll be there. So uh, tune in. What else, what else is on your mind? Anybody else want to take the mic? Hey, Dr. Sad. Um, How are you? Super, super honored to be able to, to speak to you. I'll, I'll be a little technical. So when you run a space, you're the host. Okay. You, ha you have the ability to mute everybody, um, have a certain number of speakers up. When a speaker is done, you can ask them to drop down to listener mode. That allows other speakers up. We have icons. So if you can see my, uh, my face under truth, that's me raising my hand, saying that I want to speak. This is me agreeing with whatever you're saying 100%. Sorry, you're maestro? No. No, I'm truth Truth be told. Oh, you're truth be told. Okay, so I see you now. Uh, there is a... So, let me just say what I... Let me just... Uh, yeah, what are you seeing? Sorry, say again? Well, tell me what you're seeing. Yeah, so I'm seeing... I think I gave speaking privileges to six people. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yes. Your truth be told, right now I see there's a microphone with a line across it next to your icon. Is that right? Is that what you're saying too? 
I, 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 I see just it says speaker for me, but the microphone means that you've allowed me to speak. Okay. And so... And if you, if you can see, I'm going to raise my hand now. I don't see that. Why am I not seeing that? Your truth be told, right? There, yes. Picture I, of Aristotle. So you should see my a, a little hand raised right above my picture. I don't. Interesting. Um, do the other speakers see, see my hand raised? Yes, yeah, we do. Are you on your phone? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm on. What about our host? Is he on his phone? Uh, what? Oh, oh, that's interesting. Oh, now, now, my wife just came in with the. She's following the the thing, and she. Can you raise your hand again? Truth be told. Yes. Okay. Now, so, why so, am I not seeing this, Annie? Oh, you, I, you may not see that on your computer. You will see it on your phone. No, no, this I is am a, on my phone. Okay. Okay. So, if, so th this is a way to keep 40 people from speaking at once. So you kind of see who's raised their hand. You make a mental list of who you want to go next. When there gets to be a lot of crosstalk, you can mute everybody, say, slow down. We're going to go in order. We're going to go Dan, Redhead, Sarah. Um, then we can also say, we love something. We agree with you 100%. We think your point's terrible, which probably won't happen to you very often. Can we, we agree? Point. Sorry, before, so forgive me for interrupting you. Can we all agree that my voice is as sexy as you remember it? Is that true? That is true. Excellent. Very, very good answer. Very, very good answer. Uh, my wife just said that she has to put up with my nonsense all the time. Does she, does she deserve a Nobel Prize for putting up with me for 23 years? Bless her heart. <laughs> okay, so now who's speaking? I, I'd like to know who's speaking. How would I know that? This this is Red Pills with Rachel Mills. Okay. Uh, my name is Rachel Mills. I am in Florida, St. Augustine, oh, Florida. You know, I heard that's and a gorgeous I'm... city. I've never been. True? It's it's the best city in the best state in the best country on the best planet. Wow. So how lucky My am goodness. I? And, I, and I'm yeah. in West Palm Beach, Florida, just south of Red. And I actually went to graduate school in St. Augustine on the campus of Flagler Hospital at the University um, for Health Sciences. Now, who's speaking now? Truth be told is speaking? Yes, I, was, I, I started speaking right after Red stopped. Okay. Is there a way for me to be tracking who is speaking? Forgive me again. I, I know that I sound like a total idiot here. First time doing this. Why can't I? All I see is the six speakers to whom I have granted speaker privilege listed. That's it. I see nothing else. What am I doing so, wrong? Well, where you should see the little blue lines next to our icon when we're talking. Like for when I'm talking right now, I see uh, my little microphone turns blue. I see. I don't see that. So I and must... then when I talk, my microphone turns blue. Okay. Is it? Should I be? Should I on top where it says all? Is this the icon I should or should I be pressing speakers or what's the thing that I should be pressing? Did you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. No. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. We're, we're actually we're hosting a space at nine fifteen. I sent you the um, the link. A guy named Independent does a wonderful job hosting spaces. He'll have a guest on. They'll do about a twenty minute interview, and then he will bring listeners up into the speaker podium to ask questions. Um, it, it might be a nice way for you to get an idea how these spaces flow. Okay, I'll try. I'll try to come. Uh, yeah. What is that, honey? Oh, sorry. <laughs> 
Jagannath can now speak. Okay, I just saw that. Okay. So now we have, I think, eight people who can speak. Uh, how about, should I, uh, should I maybe just suggest a topic and then hear what you guys have to say about it? How about we do that? Yes? It's your space, so you get to do what you want, which is the wonderful <laughs> thing about being the host. That's right. That's Abs Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So exactly. Uh, well, okay. How about this? Uh, what are our thoughts about, because I've been hearing all sorts of theories being floated. Some of them are kind of high on the conspiratorial score of why Tucker has left. Uh, and, and the only reason why it's on my mind is because it, it just, I just uh, saw him. I don't know if you guys saw, he put out a tweet, good evening, and then he had a two-minute clip, so I was delighted to see him back in action. Anyone want to take a shot at at least the ones who have speaker privilege, why you think he left? Do you have any good theories? So Fadid has his hand up, so you could call on him, and then he'll click his mic on and then speak. That way you still stay in control of the conversation. Sorry, this is Fadi Astrology has his hand up? Who, who did you say has his hand up? Yeah, Fadid Astrology. Fa okay, so... Uh, hello, hello. Hi, Jad. Yeah, I, I'm good. Not Jad, God. It's not. It's. Uh, Jad. So, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm Lebanese myself. Look, I just have uh, one very small question. It's not related to to your sure. question. But do you happen to know your uh, birth time? My birth what? Time. My birth time. Well, what? That's a strange question. Why do you ask that? Yeah, because uh, well, I'm an astrologer and. Uh, we're interested in the birth times of uh, people. Oh, I see. Uh, you know, I I'd like to say eleven ten, if I'm not mistaken, eleven ten in the morning. Uh, I I hope I'm right. That's that's what I seem to remember. Does that help you? Oh, okay. It, that helps me uh, a lot. Uh, th okay, thank you so my much. Pleasure. Nice to to meet you. Bye. Thank and good you, luck. sir. Thank you for joining us. Cheers. Uh, Bye. Okay. So uh, I hope I haven't given away any information that's going to get him to. Uh, to take the deed from my house. So now DCR has his hand up, so you call on him next. Okay, DCR, hold on a second. Well, th thank you so much, Truth Be Told, for helping me out. Where, where is DCR? I don't see where that it is. He's on your speaker list. Okay, hold on. I got Sarah. I got... DC Krosner. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you can just call me Daniel. Um, uh, um, so, I mean, on the subject of Tucker... Uh, I hate to be uh, the one to say that I wasn't paying too close attention until I heard the news come out, so it blindsided me a little bit. But from what I've heard, and I'll, I'll mention it to everyone else to discuss, is I don't know if it had anything to do with Fox's lawsuit with uh, Dominion, but I'll just mention it. What I will also add is I do think, uh, particularly you know, someone who's in university, um, I think that it probably is for the better, to be honest. I think Tucker can be wildly successful without Fox News. He's garnered a very positive reputation among many people across different parts of the political spectrum for, I think, being one of the only people to truly be questioning of authority and not just be willing to toe the Republican Party line when it seemed convenient or, uh, or beneficial to you know his reputation within the party. Right. And I think... That if he were to continue as an independent journalist, he would he would do much better. And I also think it's good for our information discourse for us to not get tied up with these like tribal loyalties to Fox or to CNN because I, I generally don't tend to view them in a positive light. And that's not to say that everyone at Fox is bad or that they're dishonest, but 
I do think we'd be better off with less of that. And um, I also, part of my frustration with, I guess, people like Trump as well is that I think for to a certain extent, he really kind of kept organizations like CNN and MSNBC alive. Whereas if he had just kind of said at some point, you know, I'm not even going to talk to you at all because of your blatant dishonesty, you know, regarding certain issues like Russiagate. I think he would have kind of put the nail in their coffin and it would have been a much more effective thing to do. And so Tucker leaving, I think, is a positive, uh, is a, is, is a, may turn out to be a net positive. I may be wrong, but that's my, that's my best Yeah, guess. you know, on, on, on the whole sort of Fox thing, uh, so some of you who are here may know that I have a, uh, forgive the shameless plug, but I have a, you know, my forthcoming book is coming out. Uh, it's on happiness and so on. It's, it'll be out in July. Please consider pre-ordering it. And one of the things that I tried to tell my uh, publisher when we had our, you know, uh, marketing meetings to decide, you know, how to promote the book and so on, I told them, look, I'm, I'm always honored and delighted to, you know, appear on the various Fox, uh, you know, uh, channels or shows, but it's regrettable that let's say for the parasitic mind for my last book you know i was never asked to come on you know cnn and msnbc and so on even though of course in a sane world the, the things that i'm saying should be certainly relevant for the folks on the other side of the political aisle and when it comes to a book like happiness my forthcoming book it really has zero political signature right it's it's truly a universal theme that everybody should be interested in and listening, uh, you know, what I have to say about the topic. And yet I think because of all of this tribalism, because I'm, I've somehow been, you know, tagged as a Fox guy, that a lot of the folks, you know, in other media outlets, you won't invite me. And so, you, you know, it's a very, very difficult thing. Once you become tagged as being on one side of the political aisle, even though, as I said, I mean, many of you who may follow my work, I'm, I'm, it's not that I'm coy when I say I'm neither conservative or liberal. It's because I really am a one one issue at a time guy. There are some some issues I'm you know I would be considered conservative. Other issues I'd be considered considered extremely you know socially liberal. And so I really don't I don't identify myself as being part of one camp or another. But you know there's no way for me at this point. I, I hope there'll be a way, but there's it's very very hard for me to get some of the you know the the i mean maybe bill maher might invite me or you know guys like that but you know i can't get you know even a notice from cnn or msnbc what do you guys think about all this do you think it's uh, it is feasible for me to be able to be a crossover guy or am i forever doomed to be i mean i don't mean to say doomed because i love fox but am i always going to be considered on one side irrespective of what i say I think you're personable enough that, that you will have some crossover. You, you kind of have to keep going in the spaces where you are right. and then something that the mainstream agrees with, and then they'll pick up on that. I, I have another, just a technical note. So sure. if you scroll to the top, top. There, there's a picture of you now um, and your book at the very top of this um there's like a little run at the top above all the speaking heads. Oh, right. Hold on. Oh, you know what? I was looking at a completely wrong screen. I just saw this now. Okay. So, so that's called the nest. So when you're having a conversation and people are, can get into some vigorous debate and you say, well, I want to see the study. People will post that in the comments and then they can throw that up to the top. And then that's called the nest 
so that everybody can easily see that. Oh, gotcha. So, so there's a little plug for your book. Oh, thank you so much, truth be told. Oh, I see now two hands. I see JBJ and DCR. Should I just press on the hand? To, to... No, no, they, they, they will, they unlock their own hand. You call on them based on the order you want them to speak. Oh, thank, thank you, truth be told. I, I love the Aristotle, uh, uh, you know, icon. Uh, okay, JBJ, let me go to you and then I'll go to this DCR. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, my name is Jesse, but regarding Tucker Carlson, I seen that Rob Snyder actually shared a post of his last monologue before he got fired. And it just so happens that he specifically called out the left wing media and then had Robert Kennedy Jr. on his show, which was kind of weird because a Republican platform had to have a Democrat nominee on their platform to even give him airtime. But then regarding your crossover, I think the way people are watching Twitter right now with your sarcasm, I don't know if that's going to get you in the wings of the left <laughs> you know i often talk about these kinds of issues with my wife actually today we, i was at a coffee i was having coffee with my wife and i told her you know it yeah i don't know if you guys saw when i was joking the last couple of days about you know classic gad versus nice nice new gad have you guys seen some of the stuff there what i'm doing is i'm, I'm oh sorry say again I was, I was just saying that i yeah. have seen. so there what i was doing is i'm i'm kind of satirizing what some of my, you know, the, the people who are in this space who are, quote, public intellectuals, where they always try to be super nice. They never say anything divisive. I'm okay. You're okay. And again, the reality is I'm a, you know, anybody who knows me, and I hope that most of you realize this and, you know, and seeing my, you know, seeing me in different mediums, I'm actually a very affectionate, you know, fun, jovial guy. Now, the fact that I take positions, the fact that I use satire, the fact that I might mock a stupid ideology or, you know, so on and so forth, it, it does trigger a lot of people in that, you know, uh, the old story of, you know, you want to have everybody be in your inclusive tent. So don't don't talk about anything that's divisive. But if I were to do that as a as a means of trying to, you know, cross over to all public I would feel very inauthentic and I simply can't modulate myself to never say anything that might somehow be construed by somebody as divisive. And so effort, I just have to be me and hopefully CNN will come around one of these days. We'll see. Yeah, well, I think that's the way we have to be today. If you have an opinion, you got to share it because everybody's, trying to push their agenda so you got to step up for what you believe in in today's society there you go cheers uh jesse thank you so much G uh, dcr take it away sir i would echo what was said uh definitely don't sacrifice your authenticity at all and i think it, you know at that point it's almost like you're deceiving yourself uh as to who you really are and also as to what you think and a sane society should be one that is able to challenge and confront divisive and hard issues head on and not avoid them and cower away exactly from i don't know if you guys saw uh i mean i've discussed this now in several forums but yesterday i i put out a a, a clip on my youtube channel and podcast about you know my friendship with tucker and so on and where i recounted the story with uh my cousin 
so I had, I, when I grew up in Lebanon, my best friend, I mean, really we were inseparable was a cousin of mine who, you know, we were very, very tight. We went through, you know, some ordeals in the Lebanese civil war as young kids. We're both, he's a bit older than me. He's maybe five, six months older than me. And uh, so the reason why I'm telling you all this is because you, you would have thought that, you know, two kids who, who've had our childhoods would be forever more bonded. And last year around, uh, I think it was in February when I had gone to Florida to uh, to do Tucker's show, the, the long form show, you know, the, the one hour show. Uh, when I, you know, came back from Florida, I, you know, I put out a tweet just saying, hey, thank you so much for having me on, Tucker. It was great to to meet you in person. Thank you for being, well, whatever it is I said, like, you know, just some niceties. And then my cousin out of the blue, I didn't even know that, you know, he was following me. He puts, you could probably still find the tweet. It's, I'm sure it's still up there unless he deleted it. But uh, I, I think I have a screenshot of it in case he does delete it. And he said something to the effect of, you know, have you no shame and so on. So here is a guy who was my best friend, who's a cousin with whom I went through the Le Lebanese civil war. I, I went through that ordeal with him. And yet he felt it quite appropriate to rebuke me in public for having done the unthinkable, which is to associate with Tucker Carlson, let alone to say something nice about Tucker Carlson. And it just amazes me how, I mean, and, and even for the guy who's, who wrote The Parasitic Mind, I'm amazed at how parasitized people can be with all of this tribalism so that, you know, his hate for Tucker Carlson, whether justified or not, supersedes his loyalty and affection towards his cousin. It's simply baffling. It's amazing. Any thoughts, anybody? I guess. Oh, sorry. I, uh, yeah, do, you go ahead first. I, 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 I have an observation. Sure. I have seen the the Trump derangement syndrome, but I've noticed that there's one thing that they feel more passionately about their hate for Trump, and that is their love for vaccines. <laughs> Even though Trump is the one that introduced the vaccines and touts them and brags about them right. all the time, they love the vaccines, even though they hate Trump. But they they love the vaccines more than they hate Trump. And that baffles my mind. I, I will never understand. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. Uh, OK, so now, sorry. Technical question. If if there are if there are eight requests for speaking privileges and I just randomly kind of go yes to all of them, does that mean that some of the people who are who currently have speaker privileges will be booted off because only 10 at a time could be allowed? Is that how it works? No, no, it, it will not allow you to bring other people up to the, a speaker spot. So you have to ask people that have a speaker spot nicely. If, you, if you've made your point, please drop back down to listener mode. Oh, okay. And then the speaker will drop down to listener mode. And then that'll open up. And we call this the stage. That'll open up spot speaking spots on the stage. Gotcha. So the speakers are on the stage. The things that are posted below are in the comments, and the things that put get up top so everybody can see. That's called the nest. And, and you also have a button that you can mute everybody if there's a lot of crosstalk to regain control. How, what's the button to mute everybody? Where is that? A, every screen's different. It's going to be on your screen. It might be on the bottom. Oh. Uh, okay. I have a screen that I have a thing that says mic is on. I also have a thing that says. Are there 33 comments somewhere that I should be reading? 
the, those are gen the, those are down at the bottom. So generally, those are commentary that people are making as you are speaking. Things that are pertinent will get thrown up to the nest. And then usually when the talk's over, you go through and look at the comments. It, it's very distracting if you're, ho if you're hosting the space to try to live read the comments. Got you. Okay, thank you. I'm, I mean, you're, you're a lifesaver. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, I think DCR has his hand up. Do you want to say something or, or do you just not take it down? Sure. Um, I, I would just add that I think people in their lives do need to get their priorities straight. And one of them is, I, I understand that politics is important and, and I care about it very much and I take great interest in it. But some things like family should be above that. And the, the situation with the unfortunate situation with your cousin, I think perhaps maybe one of those instances. I have family members that watch CNN that have, you know, more negative views of Trump than me and, you know, believe some things that I don't think to be true. But I, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate, at least in my own circumstance, that at the end of the day, like all of that is secondary to the actual relationships that we have. And I think that's sadly something that's maybe lacking in many families. Uh, I hear you. Amen. Uh, all right. Who, who I, am I going to next? I'll Who's also, go ahead. if I, oh, just one thing, I'll uh, go down into... Uh, I actually have to leave now, but it was a pleasure speaking with you. And I'll, uh, and hopefully, if I leave, then that should open up a speaker spot. Oh, wonderful! Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Thank you, Professor Sad. It was a pleasure. You to too. Talk Cheers. To you. Okay, so then, do I go to the request and try to add some people? Truth yes, you, you should now be able to add people, add somebody to a speaker spot. Okay, let me. I'm just going to forgive me. I'm just going down the list from top to bottom, so I'm not trying to play any favorites. Okay, I just gave one person and I gave another one. Oh, and they're your blue checked people. Did you guys uh, follow the fact that I've now re returned to being an important person because I got back my blue chip? Blue chip. Did you see that? Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had <laughs> been I had been a very important person for a few for many years as a legacy thing, but then Elon decided to to remove my legacy thing, and then I was. I was, you know, you know, Rene Descartes said, I, I think, therefore I am. Of course, it's now been updated to I have a blue check, therefore I am. And now I am back to being a important person. Oh, we've got, uh, I can't see the name, but take it away. There's somebody that has their hand up, Val and Jay. Take it away. Anybody who wants, go. Yeah, Gad, just a pointer based off the spaces that I've seen a lot of the spaces have a co-host so that the co-host can help you keep track of who raised their hand oh, first right. okay. How so do I... that you don't have to do that and you can just kind of man the room and they can man the admin part of determining who goes next so that nobody gets peeved if oh, yeah. they got skipped in line. Oh sorry about that. Okay, so how, is the co-host usually just a technical person who's a who's a fan or is it that I have to be, you know, having a production assistant with me? It, it can be anybody you want, but, but typically it will be somebody, you know, and just what Val said, they'll, they'll help manage the speakers, pulling people up. Um, so, so that essentially, so you can concentrate on speaking and not worrying about, Hey, who put their hand up and am I ticking people off? Uh, and usually in these spaces, is it just the host pontificates for as long as they want or is it more like what we're doing here back and forth what what's the typical style for these kinds of events 
anything that you can possibly imagine. Okay. So the space that I'm going to go into at 9.15, they'll interview um, a gentleman maybe 15, 20 minutes. It'll be the host and the gentleman back and forth, and then they'll open it up for questions, and then usually the guest will have to go, and then it can be freewheeling discussion after that. And again, as the host, you get to do what you want to do. Run the room the way you want it run. And what's the, again, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm benefiting here from the wisdom of the crowd. So th thank you all for joining and teaching. I was just going to compliment uh, Gad said <clears throat> on his book, Mind. Um, the Parasitic Mind? Uh, Parasite. That was so on oh, point. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It was unbelievable. Oh, thank you so much. Because Who, who's speaking now? Not oh, many people you. in the uh, United States know how the uh, parasite protocol is not followed in our country. It's unreal. So hopefully people like uh, do the parallels to the mind virus, to the parasite, you know, in the United States. I so. We'll see. I, I appreciate your kind words. Thank you so much. Cheers. Uh, all right. Who did I miss? Anybody who had their hand up? Uh, Can I make a quick do. point, a technical please. point about spaces? Sure. Um, I'm I'm kind of new to spaces too, but I was exploring the other night, and some people even do karaoke on spaces, which I think is pretty cool. So sky's the limit. <laughs> I, I think this is kind of uh, the next. But big let me thing. ask you this: What do you, what what's the so okay? I, what I usually do, I, I for anybody who follows me, I mean, you know, I, I do, you know, monologues on my YouTube channel or podcast. I, I now started doing some live streams on YouTube where, you know, people, you know, will write their questions and then I answer them as I read them. What is the unique opportunity that this medium that we're on now affords us that you wouldn't get elsewhere? What What's unique about this? It's what right now it's real time back and forth yeah. with your listeners in, in an audio exactly sense, in the sense that they're not typing their questions the way they would in a live stream i'm hearing your voice you're hearing mine is that it there's greater intimacy it's much more oh, yeah. natural okay we're, we're having a conversation and for for many of us i mean that we never get a chance to speak to somebody of your stature got you okay beautiful now if if this were held let's say on local do you, I, i'm assuming many of you are familiar with locals do you know what that is know what it is but i'm not okay on because it. local so locals rumble which they're now one company before they used to be separate companies uh reached out to me on a few occasions over the past couple of years saying look why don't you know you you have a very, you know a big audience and you know you're someone who's very engaged and blah 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 why don't you join the the platforms uh because then that way people will you know monetize your time that way you know you'll be behind it you know they'll they'll be offering you whatever it is five dollars seven dollars and they can get that intimate contact with you does it and forgive me for for asking in this way does 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 doing what we're doing now then remove the possibility of doing locals behind a paywall because here you're getting it for free. So why would you ever go and subscribe for $5 or whatever the price is? I think it depends on what's more important to you, uh, your audience size or monetizing your voice. Yeah, exactly. And actually that's been, it's, you raise a very good question because I've always gone for, you know, the purity of the process, right? Just I do it because that's what's the right thing to do and I want to spread good ideas. But 
recently, just because of how much time it takes and how many years I've been doing this, I, you know, I've been thinking that there needs to be a bit of a fairer, you know, there's a bit more symmetry in terms of how much I put into the thing and how much I get in return. So I'm, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I can really see the, the value in just doing this as we're doing now, just to connect to more people. I, I can understand that it's going to reduce the, the participation rate if you're asking people to pay. But I don't know. What, would you, I mean, would, any, does anybody want to just tell me if they would, I mean, do, do you have anybody that you follow that you pay a monthly subscription to? I do, but it's only one person because if you were to, if I were to subscribe to everyone that I absolutely love, it's just not right. feasible for the average person to it's be too able much to noise. That. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. I like Tim Pool and I subscribe to him. And there's a lot of Substacks that I follow, but there's very few that, I mean, I don't have the bandwidth for everybody that wants $5. Exactly. Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, I actually had been contacted by uh, Substack also to go on their uh, platform, you know, early in the process. And uh, at first we were discussing a kind of guaranteed contract, you know, X number of dollars for me to come in, even independently of, you know, whatever money comes in through subscriptions. But then they decided that they don't want to give these upfront contracts. You, you just come in, you come in on their platform and then whatever happens, happens. Now, that's a bit more difficult for someone like me because if I were just a content creator who's only doing that, then okay, I can you know try to develop the the audience on Substack or Locals. But you know, I have a very demanding full time job called being a professor, running a lab, applying for grants, supervising students, teaching classes. So all of these things that I do, I do them as additional things, right? Like I'm wearing seventeen different hats as additional things. So. Yeah, I'm in a very, I'm in a difficult crossroads now where I, you know, I just because of how I am, I'm, I'm a playful guy. I love to try all these things. Like today, I, an hour ago, I could have never told you that I was going to do a Twitter spaces. It just kind of hit me. And I said, okay, let's have fun and see what happens. And that's how I've always kind of done these things. I just like to innovate, do new things, cool things. I mean, that's how I first went on Joe Rogan. I went on Joe Rogan when, you know, I don't think there had ever been a professor who'd been on Joe Rogan or, 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 if, or if they had been, there were very few. Uh, but, you know, time is, is difficult to manage. As, as the platform grows, it becomes more and more difficult to, to do all these things well. So I'm really in a, in a cross, in a, a fork in the road here, deciding whether I want to continue to grow my, my base or start putting it behind a paywall. We'll see how, how it works out. Well, you need to make sure you throw in some plugs for your book. So there, I think there's two, right now you've got 214 people listening to you, but you may have several thousand listen to the playback over the next week, and that may translate into book sales. And I know your deal with the Canadian government, and you might get two pennies for every book you sell <laughs> if you're lucky. You can do a lot with two pennies. Thank you for, mm. for, for raising the most pain. You know, I, I always joke with people, although I'm not sure I'm joking, that that what happened to me with the taxes last year may have been more traumatizing than what I went through in the Lebanese civil war. And I, I say that somewhat facetiously, but maybe not, right? Because, you know, at, at least when I went through the Lebanese civil war, I was a kid, I was 10 and 11 years old. Uh, and so, you know, you're, you're resilient when you're a kid, you get over it. 
Whereas if I told you the number of times where I was just going about my business and then suddenly got this kind of this wave of anger at the thought that the government can do what they did to me. So um, so thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I really truth be told. Thank you for that. Uh, somebody put out a laughing face or maybe it was a tears. I'm not sure. Uh, anybody else want to speak? Yeah. There is some talk, I think I saw a few days ago, that Elon is contemplating allowing things like you could have subscribed spaces. So it'd be more not that, that you could have people that subscribe to you have spaces that only they can view. I think people would be more willing to pay for right. that than for tweets. Right. Because then they get interaction. Yeah, I've, I've, I've also heard about that. Uh, I mean, just because you guys are here, so I want to reward you with some information that I haven't made public because you mentioned Elon. Uh, so Elon and I had communicated a bit, I mean, publicly on Twitter, and then he started following me. I never, unlike other people who he follows, yeah, I didn't go and, oh, Elon followed me. Wow, I'm so excited, right? I mean, it was it was cool because obviously he's he's a he's a influential person, and I was very pleased that. Uh, you know, that, that there was a connection there and, you know, hopefully we can have parlayed that into, you know, exciting things. And then about maybe two or three months into him following me, he unfollowed me. And which goes back to an, an earlier thing. If, if some of you have been there for the entire uh, session now, I think it's, I, I really don't know. I, I can't, I can't speculate, but I think it, it came up, he unfollowed me because I had put out a thing about Sam Harris that many of his friends, you know, had independently said some critical things of Sam. And I had done a, a sad truth clip on it. And out of courtesy to all the people that I had mentioned in the clip, I tagged them, right? Because sometimes people don't like if, you know, you, you discuss them on, you know, on substantive matters and you don't, they don't, they don't get a heads up. And so I had tagged jo Jordan Peterson and J Joe Rogan and Brett Weinstein and Elon Musk because each of those individuals had in their own way critiqued something of Sam Harris. And I had done a clip where I was just saying, hey, you know, all of these people, all of whom are obviously, you know, smart, accomplished people, they come from different political, you know, uh, landscapes, but they all have been telling Sam Harris in their own ways that, hey, maybe he needs to be a bit more epistemologically humble and so on and i had tagged elon and apparently i mean literally within i, I mean i didn't know this there, there's some kind of bot that follows who he follows and who he unfollowed and i got a thing saying oh whatever he unfollowed you and i thought oh it must be because he wasn't happy about the fact that you know maybe he thought i was being critical of his friend sam harris or something and that, that kind of disappointed me right because you know, one thing that you, you know, I've learned to appreciate about Elon is that he doesn't give an F. He, he does his thing. He's irreverent. And to, you know, to use my, my infamous, you know, metaphor, I, you know, he's, he's a true honey badger. So I thought it was a bit disappointing that uh, someone of his clout would follow and then unfollow. But I don't know. What do you guys think? So Rue is next and then Dan. Okay, go ahead. Thank you for, uh, taking care of that truth be told cheers hey dr sad it's an I honor uh to speak 
Good, good. It's an honor to speak with you. I'm also a clinical um, psychologist, and I read The Parasitic Mind a couple of years ago, and I posted, I tweeted a picture of my copy of the book, and you liked the tweet, and I believe that I became a man that day (laughs) after you liked the tweet. So I wanted to thank you for that. And also, I I would like to ask a question, if I may. It's a little bit off topic. I um I finished postdoc about two years ago, and I went into a private practice um, because of some a family tragedy. And I just finished interviews for an, a large academic medical center position. And uh, while I'm excited about it, I have reservations. I think you would probably know as well as anyone that it's tough for someone who's more conservative minded or even a free thinker to uh, to survive and and uh, and thrive in academia. And I'm getting dissuaded by friends and family who think I'm crazy to even consider going back. Uh, so I was wondering if, if you had any thoughts about that, about, yes. um, you know, conservative-minded folks in academia, how to survive, and uh, any advice you have would be yeah, appreciated. No, I, I th- thank you for that question. You know, I get that question. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say regrettably, I get it very often. Regrettably, precisely because it's 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 sad that you even have to uh, face that, you know, that dilemma, right? I mean, in a, in, a, in a sane world, you'd be able to navigate through academia, going about your business, understanding that people may hold different positions. But as you said, that's not the reality we live in, and hence the parasitic mind. Uh, look, it's hard for me to offer you definitive advice in that it really depends on how you navigate through, you know, what I call the calculus of authenticity. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean to imply that if, if you, you know, if you don't fight the good fight, you're not being authentic. But let me, maybe if by speaking about myself, it can help you decide what, how you want to tackle it. So when people ask me, you know, why do I get engaged the way that I do? Even my wife always says, you, you lead a very stressful life as a professor and so on. Why do you have to take on all these fights? You know, why can't you be more pragmatic about things? You know, keep keep your big mouth shut and so on. And my answer to her and to anybody who's listening here or to anybody who's ever listening is I have a very exacting code of personal conduct. And it, it manifests itself in the following way. When I go to bed at night, when I put my head on the pillow, the only way for me to be able to have a good night of sleep and not suffer from existential insomnia, if I can put it that way, is to know that I was fully authentic in defending the truth. In other words, if I if I feel as though I, you know, was equivocating, I walked away from an opportunity to, you know, correct someone who was spewing bullshit or something, then I feel as though if even at that little microscopic moment, I was being fraudulent and I simply can't have that. And therefore, that's what drives my life's trajectory. That's why in, in the first chapter of The Parasitic Mind, if you remember, I talked about uh, the two life ideals that shape my entire life are tr- truth and freedom. So I, I hope you can see where I'm going with this in terms of you know answering your question. And so for if you have my exacting you know code of personal conduct, then you would say, I'm not walking away from an academic opportunity. I'm not going to let the assholes, you know, uh, you know, feather and tar me. No, I'm going to go in and I'm going to, to the best of my ability, 
that, that doesn't mean you have to be a reckless martyr, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to fight. Now, of course, there are, you know, pragmatic things that you have to also, you know, be concerned about. If you have children and you don't want to lose your job, sometimes you have to, you know, modulate what you say and so on. I, I get it, right? I, I don't live in a, you know, in a completely non-pragmatic uh, bubble. But for me, I always tell people, look, it's it's better to live five minutes as an honorable, dignified human being than to live 500 years as a coward. And I don't mean to apply that if you walk away from academia, you're a coward, hardly that. But I'm saying, you know, it, it really depends what your calculus is. So for me, I hate to see promising people. And I don't know much about you, but you're obviously, you did a PhD, you did a postdoc, you're, ob you're obviously a talented person. And it pisses me off that whether you decide to continue in academia or not stems from all of these dreadful realities that we're seeing. And that's exactly why I fight. That's why I have got, quote, a big mouth. Because, you know, look, if I showed you every every day the emails that I received, just today I received an email from a young undergraduate from Dartmouth. I only mentioned it's Dartmouth because I was a visiting professor at Dartmouth many years ago. And if you if you see the emails that I get from people who say, you know what, I'm going to stand up and fight because you motivated me, then that energizes me. That makes me feel that on all those days where I am wake up and I'm tired, I'm pissed off. And then I read an email like that. It, it gives me energy for the next month to fight. So I would implore you to not walk away. I would implore you to find whatever modulation is right for your voice. But if you walk away and he walks away and she walks away, then there'll just be a few of us bearing the, the battle for everybody. And that's not right nor fair. So hopefully you'll stick around. I hope I've answered your question. Yes, very well. Thank you so much uh, for your input. It was insightful. It was motivating. And um, I, we appreciate all that you do. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Cheers. Uh, who's next? Uh, uh, Arist I'm going to call you Aristotle, truth be told, because of the. I, I believe James was next. Okay, go ahead, James. Take it away. Are you there, James? No? Yes? And that happens as well. People will step away from the mic. Okay, now I've got 14 requests. Am I trying to look for these, or what am I, what am I doing? No, so, so now you have 14 requests, so you, you can pick out who looks interesting and pull them up onto the stage as a speaker. Okay. Well, I can't, I will drop off as speaker, but I just want to say thank you so much for, uh, uh, letting me help you test your microphone. Oh, tonight. you're very kind. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Thank okay, you. Let me just, I'm just going from the top. There are tons of blue check people. So I can't now tell who's worthy of my time or not. Everybody's blue check. Okay. So, so next time, that's why you need a co-host. So your, your co-host will actually look at their profile and can look at people that are interesting and have, um, you know, maybe somebody has a lot of followers and has a different opinion than you. So the co-host will pull that person to the front of the line um, just to get to their job. I, I can't is to keep be tolerating forward. someone with a different opinion from me. I only want people who share my opinions. Come on, man. Then, then you must be an imposter. You're not the doctor sad that I read. <laughs> very good, very good. Okay, let me. So okay, so Zag would be next. Okay, take it away, sir. I got. I'm glad you finally decided to do the spaces. All right. So uh, I'd like to tell you a couple of things that maybe people may have mentioned. But so on YouTube, when you want to do a live stream, for example. Mm -hmm. 
uh, it's typically only people who um, have that bell icon on that will uh, get a notification and uh, potentially join the live stream. Whereas on Twitter, anyone who is following you, uh, any of the 600,000 followers that may be following you, uh, if they go on Twitter and you happen to uh, have an active space, they will see that you are on the space, that you have a space going on. Uh, furthermore, everyone who is on your space will also be broadcasting the signal that uh, you are doing a space. So anyone who follows me, for example, uh, will see on the top of their screen on Twitter that I am in a space. Uh, and after they click on it, if they are curious, which people like to join their friends, uh, the spaces that their friends are on, they will also be able to join and listen, even though they don't follow you. Gotcha. So that's one advantage. Uh, furthermore, you were mentioning uh, monetization. Somebody talked about it. But you can have a subscriber-only uh, Twitter spaces. Uh, you can do them regularly whenever you want. And uh, yeah, so those are two oh, things that are quite advantageous oh, with the Twitter thing. Wonderful. Thank and you have the option to record. And you can also, if you use a, an iPhone, I don't know that you do. I do. But you... Uh, so that's good. You can do a screen recording whenever you hop on these spaces and you can, uh, at the end of the space, stop the recording and upload it to YouTube. Uh, oh, but now I couldn't because I, I did enable the recording of this thing, but not on my iPhone. Does that mean I don't get access to the recording? You will. Uh, you can still uh, get back to the recorded space. And let it run, perhaps, while your screen is recording, while your iPhone is recording the screen together with the audio, and upload it. But I understand you may not want to just leave your phone recording for an hour or so. Oh, so see. just keep in mind, next time you can do that. So those are Beautiful. good options. Beautiful. Okay, yeah. thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. do, do we have a sense, guys, of what is a good uh, conversion rate I mean, this is my first one and it was on the spur of the moment. It wasn't as though it was scheduled or advertised and so on. But like, let's say if, you, if I've got, you know, whatever, six, seven hundred thousand followers, is it that, oh, you should expect that one percent of those people jump on a spaces thing or w what's the number that we're shooting for? I think it depends uh, what fraction of your following is uh, comprised of bots, uh, what fraction of your followers are active on a daily basis what fraction of those are uh, keeping up with your content. So I think it's hard to say, but uh, it really depends. And you also have to do this on a regular basis. So if the frequency is somewhat regular, like once a week on weekends or on uh, hot hours, like on a Friday evening or Saturday afternoon, etc., it will really depend on those. But once you start becoming regular, people... Uh, know that you are doing the spaces and that you interact with your audience, uh, then I think you have a good chance of having a larger and larger audience over time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Cheers. You, uh, you can also schedule this ahead of time and there will be, uh, all, all of your followers will get a reminder or a notice that you have a space upcoming in two days and then we can set a reminder as well. And like he said, so all of our followers will know that we're in this space as well. And what's the typical sweet spot in terms of the duration of a Spaces event? Is it, is it an hour? Is it 30 minutes? Is it a Joe Rogan three-hour bonanza? How, how do we do it? 
I've been on spaces that have gone six hours. Oh, I think oh. it's I, th I think it's up to you will set your time, um, what you want to cover, and then again you you run your space. And if you limit it to two hours, usually two hours, everybody gets a chance to speak. You start getting repetitive comments. People start coming back to something that happened a half an hour ago, and you yeah. know that it's time to wrap it up. And is it better to like? Is it better to have a spaces where I say, okay, guys. Today's spaces is strictly evolutionary psychology, or is it better to just everything under the sun? Ask me anything. Let's talk about anything. What's what's the better way to go? Niche or open? Again, de depends upon what your goal for the space is. So a lot of the space that I've been in is different vaccine spaces, different virology spaces, some political spaces. So it, it may be, let's talk about Ron DeSantis. And the space is about Ron DeSantis and what he's doing in Florida. So we try to limit it to that space. We don't go off on tangents about Biden and Trump and other more general political discussions. So it, it can be really wide open. Again, as the host, you're going to steer what you would like to see. And that James is next when we're done. Okay. And now I've got 17 people waiting for uh, speaker privilege, do I ask some people to who 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 have been speakers to step off to bring in other yes. people? Uh, by the way, just to add, uh, you may at some point want to have co-hosts because if it so happens that your internet connection breaks or, or your battery dies or whatnot, uh, if you have a co-host, the space won't automatically shut down and will uh, give you some time to be able to come Got back. You. There's, thank you so much. There's someone with their hand up. Is it J.A.? Is it? Oh, James. Do we... James. Take yeah. it away. Uh, hey, guys. Again, I, I just... I, I, I got to... Big fan. Just gotta, I gotta say that. Shout that out. Uh, I am so happy to see you hosting a space. Wow, Thank you. Uh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, for for yeah. So um, I got a couple questions, but I, I just I'll just I've hosted a ton of spaces. Um, there's all different kinds of strategies uh, to to host spaces. Uh, you will command a, an audience just uh, by your reputation and by your stature, and so. Whatever, whenever you want to host a space, you could pre-program it or just open one. You're going to attract a good group of, of people, no matter no matter what you want to do. Um, so you you have the uh, the power to do that. Um, and I would you know kind of chime in on what everybody else is saying. You should turn over the trivia to a co-host. Yes. So in order to create a co-host, there's that two people button yes. down at the bottom. Just hit that button. There'll be an opportunity to create a co-host. The other advantage of creating a co-host is it doesn't take up a mic, a speaker mic, right? So that co-host will be a, a co-host. They can let people up, put people down, uh, help you manage the room, and uh, you still have the same number of, of, of speakers open. So it's like getting an, a bonus speaker, and you're allowed two co-hosts. So um, I would encourage you to uh, take that step, create a co-host. And then turn over who comes up, who comes down uh, to that person. And you don't have to worry about that. You can just focus on on being the host and and talking about you know whatever topics you you uh, you want to talk about that night. Uh, so it really takes you know that that administrative work away from you. And they and and co-hosts can also be um, you know fellow 
uh, speakers on a certain topic or sometimes they're guests you want to bring to your space. You want to give them a little bit of elevated status. They, you know, some sometimes that's a good uh, good way to use the co-host position. Gotcha. So thank you so much. Just, uh, just, just to give. But uh, two questions I want to ask sure. you uh, because I know how uh, engaged you are uh, in American politics, and I'm a Canadian too. But I'm fascinated by what goes on south of the border. Yes. Uh, what do you think of uh, Tucker's situation? Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm excited, quite frankly, to see him, uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, out of that, uh, genre. And I'm really curious, uh, what he might do next. He's got a, he's got a, um, a little video out right now, uh, just, you know, talking yeah, yeah, about, uh, what it feels like to be free. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, him, so I'm, I'm curious what you think of that. And the other thing I'm curious about is um, is RFK. Uh, you know his idea to uh, to uh, run um, as a candidate for the Democratic Party. Uh, I think he's a fascinating man. I'm I'm a more of a Republican myself, but I I, I really do um, have a lot of uh, respect for him. Um, and I'm curious about what your thoughts are. Yes. So, so those are my two. Yeah. Questions. Thank you. Uh, so. Uh, regarding Tucker, we, we spoke about it a, a bit earlier, I think before maybe you joined. Uh, I also think, just like you, that there are only exciting days ahead for him. He, you know, he is such a unique talent. Um, he obviously has, uh, he garners a huge audience that it's not going to affect his reach in the least bit, in my view. If anything, uh, as I think you intimated, it's only going to you know, expand his reach once he goes solo. So I think, you know, there's only bright days ahead for Tucker. I, I have no worries whatsoever. Uh, regarding uh, uh, Kennedy, if I remember correctly, maybe about a couple of months ago, someone from his camp or, you know, I don't know if it was a publicist of his for his book or something had reached out to me. Uh, this, is what, this was way before he had announced that he's running for president and said, hey, would you like to have him on as a guest on your show? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And I don't know what happened after that. It, it, you know, it, it never, uh, never materialized. I don't know enough about his positions, to be honest with you. Uh, so I can't really offer an intelligent response that's based, that's based on anything substantive. But I can offer you a, 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 a peripheral. I don't know if you guys know the difference between peripheral cues and and, and central cues. In, in advertising, a central cue would be if I told you, here are the 17 reasons why you should buy my mutual fund. So I give you, you know, cog cognitive, substantive justifications for why you should buy my product. A, a, a cosmetic or peripheral cue would be, you know, Jennifer Lopez is riding a horse and says, you know, I, I wear this perfume, shouldn't you, right? It's it's peripheral, meaning that it's it's not engaging your central route of persuasion. And so what I'm about to offer as an answer to your question regarding Kennedy is, is, is a bit of a peripheral cue, and maybe you guys know where I'm going with this, but these things matter. I think there is a real problem with the audio quality of his voice, right? Uh, now, I say this, you know, not to be flippant or to, to be, uh, you know, trivial, but it turns out, uh, actually, wrote a, uh, an academic paper about this in 2003 where I was linking some evolutionary principles to political marketing. And I was arguing that 
you know, maybe with some regret, the reality is that most of the populace, when they are judging who, whom to vote for, they don't uh, engage their central root of persuasion. And, and actually, I, I discuss this again in The Parasitic Mind, I think in chapter two, when I'm talking about truth versus feelings. People use, you know, oh, oh, he's tall, he looks presidential. Oh, he's short, he probably is a little wimpy guy, right? That's why you probably have heard of the studies that, that show that, you know, CEOs, male CEOs on average tend to be much taller than the, the average height in the population, right? Uh, so uh, I worry that for many people, whether rightly or wrongly, they might say, you know, I like his positions, but that, that voice just doesn't cut it. It doesn't sound presidential. It doesn't th- sound authoritative. It, that, you know, so I don't know what, what, what do you, I mean, I can turn this to, to the gentleman who asked the question. I think it was, is it James, the name or, or, or anybody? Yeah, else? Do, no, do you, I, 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 I absolutely share your, your thought. Um, I, I think he's, um, I, I, I've heard him speak many times, and you're right. He's he stutters, he stumbles, he's um, definitely a speech impediment. I think it yeah. also might um, garner some respect. Um, I, I kind of, you know, I when I first heard him, I, I felt the same way you did. But you know, after I heard him speak a few times, it's it started to kind of become a badge of honor. Um, I, I kept thinking, you know, this guy, you know, he, he, he it's not going to, he's, he's, he's a, um, you know, he, there's some character there. He's a, right. he's a committed man. He's gonna, you know, he's going to follow this through. He's going to, he's got, you know, there's something behind him. I, you know, honestly, you know, maybe that's me. Um, and, but I, I, I think your, your point is well taken. Um, it is difficult for um, anyone uh, to overcome uh there you know you need to, you need the the right stuff yeah as they say to uh to, to rise to uh those high levels and um yeah it's, it's a good point i and i, I do uh, and, and to, share the thought. yeah no thank you uh on on the positive side and again i'm basing this on you know very little knowledge other than sort of first impressions he strikes me as though he he's he's not a narcissist right i mean almost all politicians exude this this suffocating you know aura of narcissism what you know whether it be you know donald trump you know he's kind of a megalomaniac guy whether it be barack obama who's you know the chosen king right the peace be upon you barack obama uh you know all these guys have this kind of sleazy narcissistic quality to them whereas in the in the little that i've seen uh kennedy you know he does seem as though he he really has some ideas you know whether you agree with them or not that seem to be rooted in something other than just a grab for power a, a you know a narcissistic thirst you know to hear himself speak so you know, I don't know if I'm right about this, but that's kind of the, the aura that he gives me. So who knows? We'll see. Uh, there are three people that have their hands up. Do I just randomly pick who goes next? No, so I, so I believe it's Marisol, Florida, and then Zag. Okay. And then um, Robert Kennedy has a, a condition called spasmodic dystonia. So I put an article into the comments and then put it up in the nest. So what will happen now is somebody who wants to know why his voice is like that when you come to that part of your talk, 
there is an article that explains why his voice is the way it is. Now, how come I can't see it? So, like, right now, what I can see are just the icons of the people, you know, like the different people. Why can't I see that? You, you've got to pull it? those icons down a little bit, and then you can run across the top. It's called the nest. And then you'll see what, what different people have posted to the nest. Oh, okay. I'm and then Mar Marisol's next. Okay, take it away, Marisol. Hi, God. Thank you so much for your honesty and your integrity. Um, and um, also your, your very engaging and sometimes very funny uh, post. I believe you like one tweet of mine one time. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to comment about the um, being in academia. Sure. I am in academia. I'm a professor at Michigan State right okay. now. Professor of nematology. Those are microscopic roundworms. And my views are different than the vast majority of other academics, uh, both in my department and wider and students. And um, the question was whether to join academia or not. And I would recommend yes, because especially students and young people need to hear from different views for, for their benefit so that their, you know, their, their viewpoint is larger and so that they're exposed to other things, um, it will be a challenge. It has been a challenge with me. I've had many battles and um, tell you the truth, um, uh, the intolerance level right now is really high against different opinions. Yes. It's, um, it's, it's incredible. I mean, to the point of death threats that I've gotten and, and insults uh, in, and many, many insults, even for even from people that I know. So it's not, it's, it's not a walk in the park, but I think it's worth it. And all, and there is help. There's people, there's like fire, um, um, that it go, uh, free speech organization who, who can help. So it, it's worth it, but it's not going to be an easy ride. So anyway, that was my comment on that. The other part that I wanted to talk about, about this gender ideology thing, and, and you, have, you have addressed this in a couple of your messages, Gad. Um, it seems it's so devoid of reality. What is your opinion? What is happening to these intelligent academics that it has right. taken over them and they can't see reality and even an opinion that is so based in science like men and women are real and there's sure. two you know there's just two gamete sex i mean eggs and sperm what what happened what happened to them in your right. opinion uh, well for, so thank you for your opening kind uh, remarks that's very nice of you uh just to add to what you said about, you know, yes, young people should, should join academia and so on. And in, in answering the earlier gentleman who had asked me that question, uh, there is nothing more beautiful than the cerebral life, right? Right now, I'm sitting with people that I've never met before, and we're having this very intimate moment discussing ideas, which an hour ago, I wouldn't have known that I was doing. Well, that's really my entire life is built around that pursuit, whether I'm reading a book, whether I'm writing a book, whether I'm teaching students, whether I'm engaging an editor or reviewers, whether I'm applying for a grant, whether I'm writing scientific papers, I'm involved in perpetual intellectual play, right? And you, 
I agree right? with you, you. It's it's it brings satisfaction like exactly. nothing else. It's, it's it's truly in a sense, and forgive me for you know I don't mean to sound too you know, uh, poetic, but it's it's the highest form of you know it's an intellectual orgasm perpetually, right? Because you, you yeah. know I, I mean right now I'm sitting in in my study, I'm surrounded by the latest round of obsessive book purchasing that I engage in. And I'm panicking at the thought of when am I going to have time to read all these incredible books, right? So so academia, beyond all of the woke and anti-woke stuff, there is something inherently noble, as anybody you know who understands the world would say. I mean, professors are held, I mean, not woke professors, but professors in terms of academics are held to a high standard because they really are pursuing an incredibly privileged calling. I mean, you know, to, to shape young people's minds who then come to you and say, my God, I've learned so much from blah, blah. So yes, I would love for people to uh, to pursue our trajectory, Marisol, and to go into academia. So that that's number one. To, to your second point of, you know, why is it that so many intelligent professors can, you know, uh, decouple themselves from reality? I mean, of course, that's exactly what I cover in the parasitic mind. But let me answer your specific question in a very direct way. You talked about reality. And I basically argue in uh, one of the early chapters in the parasitic mind that all of the idea pathogens that I enumerate in the parasitic mind, you know, postmodernism, cultural relativism, social constructivism, militant feminism, all of them share one thing in common, and that is the r desire to be free from the pesky shackles of reality. So it's exactly to your point, right? Because what does postmodernism do? And why do I call it the granddaddy of all idea pathogens? Because it's, it frees me from the pesky realities of something being called true. There is no truth mm. with a capital T, right? So that's the, the, the worst form of intellectual terrorism. Well, transgender activism frees me of the pesky reality of my genitalia, right? Uh, social constructivism frees me of the pesky reality of, you know, what the average three-year-old, three uh, three-day-old pigeon knows, which is that we are not born with equal potentiality. Now, of course, of That's course, right. we are born or not born. We, we should be equal under the law, right? There's that's but, right. But but not everybody is born with an equal chance of becoming the next Albert Einstein, the next Michael Jordan or the le the next Lionel Messi. But boy, it would be nice yeah. if I could espouse that position to all parents, because that's a very hopeful message. It makes me feel good. I'd like to know that my child is not born with any lesser chance to being the next Michael Jordan or Lionel Messi. If only I hug him enough or don't hug him enough or give him enough Big Macs or not enough Big Mac, he too can be the next you know, <laughs> Messi, right? So so, so to answer your question, it, you the, when you use the word reality in posing your question, you hit the, the, the nail on the head. What these idea pathogens do is even if momentarily they free me from the constraints of reality, right? Uh, I just have yeah. to wave the magic wand of trans and I could become anything that I want to be. 
And this is why, by the way, I use mockery and sarcasm and satire because, That's right. because I then can extrapolate the lunacy of this position to its extreme end. That's why, if you remember, if you, if you read the Parasitic Mind, I then talked about trans-ageism yeah. and trans-gravity. Yeah. This is why I'm going yeah. to enter the under eight-year-old judo competition because I, now I, I was doing the trans-ageism before it ended up being that now people are doing that, right? They're saying, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I think there was a guy 50 years old pretending to it, be some six year old exactly. girl. And I start and I quoted the one or two cases where, you know, this was starting to happen in, in my, in my uh, testimony in front of the Canadian government uh, uh, in 2017, I gave the example of get ready for transracialism to come along. And guess what? That's mm -hmm. so, you know, again, all of these things free me from the pesky reality of my day to day. I don't like my genitalia. Boom, trans. I'm something else. I don't like uh, the scientific truth. Boom. There is no truth. There's only my truth. There's only my lived experience. So to your point, I think what happens with a lot of these academics is that they pursue a calculus of feel good platitudes rather than a deontological love for the truth. And that's why I always tell people, uh, I, I'm not willing to be faux nice in order to spare someone's feeling. I could chew gum and walk at the same time. I could say that, mm -hmm. yes, transgender people should not be discriminated against, but no, you're full of shit if you say that men too can menstruate. Both of these statements are perfectly <laughs> valid. And, and, and that's I right. completely share your bewilderment, Marisol, that it amazes me that these people have PhDs and are called professors and can't see something as trivially true as what we're saying right now. It's amazing, but that's, that's the world right. we live in. What can we do? It's, it, 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 it's quite amazing. Well, that was a very, very deep and thoughtful response. So thank you very much. Thank you Gary. so much, Marisol. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'll, let, I'll let the next uh, one Aristotle, go. Aristotle, can you tell us who's next? Florida Data had their hand up, so Florida Data, then Zag, then Neelan. Okay, take it away. Uh, hi, hi, Dr. Sad. This is uh, Dylan Sinekson, the uh, lead scientist at Florida Data Science Academy. I think the last uh, couple speakers talking about academia <laughs> could not have set up my question any better. Uh, so particularly the, the postdoc, uh, I'm myself in a very similar position. I just finished my PhD in ecology last year, and I've been in a postdoc uh, for the last year. But in, in the meantime, I've actually been able to uh, develop an independent uh, research institution and educational institution, uh, Florida Data Science Academy, you know, just because, uh, like everybody else, extremely frustrated with the wokeification of academia. Uh, the uh, it seems like no one's interested in pursuing the truth in academia. And I think we can all agree that pursuing the truth is the noblest profession and we should all be excited about, uh, you know, getting closer to the truth. Uh, so I guess my my uh, maybe advice or, or maybe your question is, uh, I think there's, uh, you know, I, I would strongly disagree. I don't think academia is, you know, the only place to pursue the truth. Uh, I mean, I think we can certainly kind of wean ourselves off of academia and start developing independent research institutions. Uh, you know, something that I did, uh, you know, obviously we kind of generate revenue from uh, uh, from subscriptions, but we're also uh, 
have a couple of grants in. We're trying to do our own research. So I guess my question or, and advice is, uh, what do you think about kind of independent research institutions or what do you think about kind of academics leaving academia? Because, you know, we can find we can pursue the truth on our own, you know, just, uh, sure. you know, I, I don't think we have to be kind of these indentured servants to the the, uh, the woke mob of, of academia. I think we should, you know, kind of branch out and do our own thing and find find the truth on our own. Right. Uh, no, thank you. Thank you for that question and uh, for that advice. Uh, look, I've, I've toyed with with what you're saying myself in that, you know, I've, for those of you who, who know me, there's, there's only been two things that I've ever been interested in being, and that is professional soccer player and professor. And you could have, you know, spoken to me when I was 10 years old and I would have told you the same thing. Uh, so it has always been part of, you know, my essence to be in academia but even someone like me who is so dedicated to, you know, the standard, you know, academic institutions, I've toyed with exactly what you're saying, which is even without worrying about the wokeification stuff. So in other words, even if there weren't a single idea pathogen that had been infesting academia, that conversation would still be worth having the conversation of, you know, should you strictly stay in academia? And let me explain why. Academia is a very slow ecosystem, right? So we have a departmental meeting to decide whether we're going to strike a joint committee task force to decide if we're going to do a feasibility study to decide if we're going to have coffee machines in the faculty lounge. So it'll take us six years of reflection before we decide to put a $50 uh, you know, a coffee mug in the, in, the, in the faculty lounge. I mean, I'm being slightly facetious, but the point is that things move very slowly in academia, right? Academia is the place where innovative big things go to die. And that's something that for someone like me, who's, you know, very much of a, you know, entrepreneurial free spirit, I'd like things to move more quickly. And so to your point, I think, you know, independent institutions or institutes might be the place where you can, you know, satiate that thirst for, for greater velocity of getting things done. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I hope I'm not misspeaking, but I think Peter Hood, which now the, the Hood Institute, I think he used to be, this is a, a secondhand information, so I, hope, I hope I'm not getting some of the details wrong. I think he used to be at Caltech, a very prominent professor. He was getting frustrated, decided to leave, founded his own institution or institute, and now you know he's doing big, huge things outside of academia. So I think your point is well taken that there are many ways by which we can, you know, pursue truth, not necessarily under academia, although there are some areas of research that the infrastructure is, you know, is, is more likely to be amenable to doing research if you are within the, the you know, the structure of, of an academic setting. So uh, now in my case, I've thought, you know, maybe I want to leave academia and only, you know, produce content, maybe produce lectures, maybe give, you know, speaker series, maybe write books. But if I wanted to do empirical-based studies, the typical studies that I would be publishing in peer-reviewed journals, it probably would be a lot easier to do it within the context of academia. But generally speaking, your, your point is well taken. One, before, before I open it up to the next person, I just received a note that I'm under now 20%. I think I'm at 18%. So I don't know how much more time that would give us. I'm, I'm assuming still a while. I don't think we have to you know, abruptly ended. 
but I am somewhat confined by the fact that the battery is starting to run out. So maybe another 20 minutes or so. Uh, did, I, did I generally address your question? Uh, absolutely. And I think it's something, you know, uh, you bring up a good point of kind of the infrastructure. Obviously, if you have a, a big lab exactly. and, you know, maybe NSF doesn't want to fund, you know, some small independent institution that doesn't have the, you know, whatever the instrumentation that a, you know, a, a big research project would need. Uh, I, I totally understand. But, uh, you know, I have I have enjoyed, you know, starting uh, my own institution. And if anybody's interested in uh, uh, teaching data science and coding and doing kind of uh, quantitative sciences, uh, certainly uh, uh, opportunities are available at Florida Data oh, Science Academy. Great. So that's cool. Thank you so much. Cheers. Yep. Yeah, uh, thank you. Aristotle, can you take it away? Tell us who's next. Yep. Zag is next, then Neelan, then John. Okay. Take it away, Zag. Hi again. Yeah, so uh, I'm an undergrad at ASU uh, doing a dual major in aerospace and physics. And Though I'm feeling some of the effects of, uh, to quote James Lindsay, the Marxification of education, uh, even in STEM, it's not quite there yet, at least at ASU. Uh, but I do occasionally take um, like a class in anthropology or a class in literature just for fun. And as soon as I step outside the boundaries of STEM, it's just everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you can hear, hear it, you can feel it, you are constantly bombarded with it. Uh, it's the virus basically has really penetrated deeply and multiplied itself. Although, if I may add, yeah. uh, you know, many people thought that the natural sciences, you know, you know, STEM or more broadly, the natural sciences would somehow be immune to those idea pathogens. And as I think many people are starting to find out, that's hardly true. Right. So. So it's taken longer for some of the bullshit to penetrate, you know, physics and chemistry and so on. But it's coming for you. Nobody is safe, right? I mean, uh, in the parasitic mind, I talk about the group uh, Particles for Justice. Has, has anybody heard of that group? Do you, do you guys know this? These guys? You, anybody who who has speaker privilege, you want to? No, we haven't. No. Particles for Justice was a group that was founded. Uh, on the heels of uh, uh, Strumia, the physicist who had done a lecture at a conference on gender and physics where he had shared bibliometric data. So this is very objective, you know, uh, quantitative data that showed that there was hardly a gender bias in physics. And for having done so, you know, he was fired and, you know, so on and so forth. Oh, oh my wife is going to plug the things. Is that what you're doing? Oh, okay. Thanks, love. Uh, now I'm going to be with these guys till 4 o'clock in the morning. Maybe okay, that's the point. Maybe that's the point. Hold on. Uh, where do I put this? Hold on. Sorry, guys. One sec. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yes. Uh, apparently, my wife doesn't want to spend any quality time with me because she's finding every possible way for me to stay with you guys longer. Uh, but anyways, uh, so... So Particles for Justice were a, a group, a bunch of signatories from physics, uh, most notably the completely lobotomized Sean Carroll, who many of you know is a prominent physicist, where they, instead of saying, this is insane, all that Strumia did was share some, you know, uh, objective data uh, about, you know, this issue is is there or is there not a gender bias against 
female physicists? And, and the answer was there wasn't. Uh, they all came after him. And and some of the language that they use, you, I, I think probably their website is still up. I, I cite it in the parasitic mind. It's They're called Particles for Justice. If you read their woke statements, you, you, you just wouldn't believe it. It'll, it'll be like they're from women's studies at Wellesley College. And these were all physicists. So I don't think anybody is safe from this bullshit. As a matter of fact, as I, you know, explained in the parasitic mind, and 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 as Orwell had long said in you know different words, you know, it takes intellectuals to come up with the dumbest ideas, right? So the fact that you are educated, the fact that you're a PhD, the fact that you're a professor, the fact that you're a physicist will not make you immune to this bullshit. It it completely lobotomizes your brain. So I'm glad, Zach, that you've been pretty protected from this stuff. But uh, don't be complacent. The bullshit is coming for you. Yeah, and just to give you an example, like a year and a half ago, I took a class called uh, Science Exploration. And one of the assignments was to literally, I don't know how else to put it, me to Feynman. <laughs> uh, so I told the instructor, look, first of all, I don't agree with the premises. Uh, like, uh, I don't have any evidence for it. I'm not going to write a paper me tooing a guy who died before even I, I was even born. Uh, I'm not going to write this paper. Like, either give me a separate assignment or just let me write uh, exactly what's in my mind and disagree with the premises themselves. And, like, I hope you won't, uh, you know, uh, penalize me with grades and whatnot. He was reasonable enough to not cause trouble. So I did uh, write, Good for write you. my mind. So, yeah, even uh, in STEM, as you say, we are not safe. Like, for example, in Concordia, the uh, decolonize uh, light, light exactly. you know, th those kind of things. Well, <laughs> it's by crazy. The way, today, first of all, number one, I'm proud of you. That When people say, well, what should I do? You, What you just said, that's what you should do, right? You don't have to be impolite. You don't have to be aggressive. All you have to do is don't turn your back from a violation you know, of these deontological principles. If the guy, if your professor is saying stuff that, that you find objectionable, challenge them politely, right? Just don't don't diffuse the responsibility of the battle of ideas to others because, you know, I want to get an A because I'm applying for tenure. There's always an excuse for why it shouldn't be you. And that's cowardly, that's apathetic. And so thank you, Zach, for, for not doing that. Uh, but to your point about Concordia, I just posted early, as a general rule, as a courtesy, kind of as a decorum, I try to not take on Concordia-specific issues, just out of respect for my institution, right? But, of course, I also have to be authentic. If they're engaging in bullshit, I have to address it. So, earlier today, I just put out a tweet without any editorializing. You can probably go back and look for it in, in, in my Twitter feed. It was a $23 million grant that was just granted, uh, not just to Concordia, although the, the lead investigator is from Concordia. And the general topic of the $23 million grant is indigenizing artificial intelligence. What the fuck does that mean? What, what does it mean to indigenize AI? Well, apparently it means something. It means $23 million. So that's the kind of, look, Lysenkoism, as some of you may know, and I mention it in the parasitic mind. Yeah, I know what that is. Go, go ahead. Tell us what it is. 
Yeah, well, Lysenko was a scientist in, in, in Russia working in agriculture and pretty much believed that, um, that um, plants had like no limit. They could be adapted to any environment or I don't remember all the details, but he, he, he caused many people to starve, you know, planting things in the wrong time or in the wrong, in, in the wrong way and expecting and also he he was going on ideology and not based on science and data and it caused a huge amount of problem including death and starvation in in the order of about 20 20 to 30 million deaths due to famine the idea was that that is right fundamental laws of genetics mendelian genetics were incorrect because they were incompatible with marxist theory and so he offered an alternative theory. I mean, we don't need to get into the technical details, but an alternate theory that was not rooted in science that had real downstream consequences, which, I mean, in some cases, people say, okay, but who cares if people have these esoteric, nonsensical, you know, beliefs? It doesn't affect anybody. Well, first of all, it, it does affect the truth. And so already that is objectionable. But many of these ideas do have concrete downstream effects. People will die of starvation if you espouse bullshit not rooted in science. And so, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, I mean that, this is why I get up every morning and I rub my hands together and say, okay, which bullshitter am I bringing down today? Because I genuinely think that we all have a part to play. And, by, and Jim, let me just mention this. Many of you may have heard me say this. Just like Zag mentioned with his case with his professor, he didn't like the paper that he was assigned and so on. People think that only if you have the platform of Joe Rogan can you affect change. Or only if you are a fancy professor with all the titles, people will listen to you. No. If people, if, if you're sitting at a pub with your friends and someone says something that you disagree with, your friendship has to be sufficiently anti-fragile that you can challenge them in a meaningful way. Otherwise, that friendship is not worth, uh, you know, uh, anything, right? If, if we can't disagree on important substantive matters, then don't let the door hit your ass on the way out, right? So, so it's not true that only people with big platforms and big titles are the ones who should be throwing their hat into the battle of ideas. Within your sphere of influence you can be very influential and then if every single person approaches their day-to-day with that attitude then we can affect change very very quickly so i'll give you a a a small example a few years ago my daughter had a son i think it was a science teacher she was at the time in elementary school and uh, the teacher had you know blm sign as part of her avatar and all this kind of stuff and so on so i i wrote to the uh principal now obviously i already you know put lend my voice to the battle of ideas in a a grand way but in this case i was intervening in the day-to-day of my daughter i wrote to the principal and i said look uh i don't think it's appropriate in a whatever it was a grade five you know science class for the teacher to be uh advertising you know under the official avatar of her you know teacher credentials you know hashtag blm or free palestine or any of the other bullshit that doesn't mean that she can't 
espouse political positions. She just can't do them in the context of teaching my five-year-old. Uh, and and guess what? Within a couple of days, that avatar was gone. So we can affect change at the most microscopic level to the most cosmic level. Just get engaged in whichever way you can. Just don't sit idly and diffuse it to other people. Aristotle, who's next? Uh, can I actually uh, ask my question? Please. So the uh, groundwork is already laid down. So given the state of academia, the uh, lost cause of social sciences and the shaky ground that STEM is upon, uh, would you agree with Peter Bogosian that we shouldn't try and salvage academia, that we should just let it burn and let it devour itself as it spirals down this <laughs> Marxist uh, walk, uh, slippery right. slope? Well, what do you yeah, think about I, that? I'm not quite as pessimistic as, as Peter. Now, I don't know if that stems from the fact that he has left academia and therefore he's engaging in sort of post hoc rationalization or or maybe it is because he holds that position that he decided to leave academia, that he didn't think it was worth uh, salvaging it. Uh, you know, I think that the tide can be turned faster than you might otherwise think. Now, it, it won't be overnight. I mean, I, I famously said the first time that I appeared on Tucker Carlson's show, I said something to the effect, you know, if we all speak out in unison, we'll get rid of these, uh, you know, idiotic ideas by next Tuesday. Otherwise, it'll be a long, slow train ride to hell or something to that effect. Uh, you know, I was maybe being a bit hyperbolic in that I didn't think we'd get rid of the idea pathogens by next Tuesday. But it doesn't need to be 100 years of cultural wars for us to turn the tide. What really needs to happen, and, I, I, and I'm, I'm not being just frivolously optimistic, what really needs to happen is for the silent majority to all speak in unison. Because I promise you that the silent majority, even within academia, hate this bullshit. But they are completely, you know, cowed into silence by the truly vociferous activists, right? So, and, and here I like to draw an analogy. When I tell people, how, how, many, how many committed religious zealots brought down the Twin Towers? Was it 19 million terrorists? Was it 190,000 terrorists? Was it 1,900 terrorists? Oh, no, it was 19 terrorists. It only took 19 insane people who held very, very strong dogmatic beliefs to alter the landscape of New York forevermore. The reason why I think that's a very powerful analogy is because you don't need 80% of academia to be blue-haired people to keep the rest of us in check. You just need a few people who intimidate everybody into saying, yes, yes, men too can menstruate. Of course, I know this. Yes, of course, men can bear children. Of course, only bigots think otherwise. And then we all kind of, you know, nod our heads in agreement. But if and that's why I do what I do. That's why I'm sitting here now for two hours chatting with people. I mean, I love this. It's fun. But it's because I truly am optimistic that we just need to get people to find their spine, to find their testicles, to find their voices. And then once they are encouraged to speak, then I'm not saying academia will be free of idea pathogens. But we will have seen our worst days. So to answer your question, and hopefully not to a long-winded way, I don't think you can raise, you know, bring down the entire edifice and start from scratch. Or I don't think that's feasible. I I think yes, the cancer has spread very far, but I think with the right radiation therapy, 
we can bring it back. I'd like to be that optimistic. Well, thank you, God. With this motivation, I'm going to go and do some more honey badgering <laughs> at my university. <laughs> thank you, great, great talking to you. Thank, thank you very you much. Too. Take good uh, care. Aristotle, bye -bye. who's next? All right, Neilan is up next, and then John. Take it away. Hey, God. Thank you hey. for the space. appreciate sure. it. Um, I definitely 100% agree with everything you just said. Um, and to the gentleman's point earlier uh, from Florida Data, uh, Florida Data Science Academy, uh, yeah, ever since I left um, university back in 2009, I've basically moved myself into that podcast realm, into, a, into spaces where it's more of a back and forth, whether you agree or not, mm -hmm. um, trying to get like a, a better landscape of what's going on. Um, and to that point where it's you, you get so focused in the minority screaming that you kind of lose sight. Um, but not to change gears too much, to go back to your point about uh, Twitter space, Mm -hmm. and um, your other platforms. Sure. Twitter spaces, I've noticed uh, a lot of people end up using um, their other platforms to kind of incorporate or schedule a space around uh, whatever they're recording. So if it's YouTube or if it's uh, Spotify or if they're streaming on something else like Rumble, they'll usually incorporate or set a different kind of schedule where they might take a two-hour block and then take the last half an hour and just do the Twitter space or they'll do it within the whole stream. Um, so that's just a, a fruit for thought. But why? So, why are they splitting it from one platform to the other? What's the benefit in doing that? So there's two different kind of techniques, I guess, I see people using in the sense of the production team. The people with a bigger production team, whether it's at home or whatever their office may be, um, it seems like they're able to either monetize better or they're looking at their statistics, uh, whether they're using YouTube or Rumble. I'm not sure on what Rumble's API or their statistics will give back to you. But I know YouTube usually will give you the demographic. And if you're live streaming most of the time, you could probably end up getting a good grasp of your time zones. So you can kind of see if you're hitting the most of everybody's exposure when they're on their displays. Gotcha. So I work from home. I've been working from home since, I don't know, 15, almost 20 years now. Um, so I kind of, I'm on all day long, but I can tell you that out of my 12-hour workday, I'm probably only listening to about four hours because I just don't have the capacity or the bandwidth to keep going. So I think that a lot of people find that if they're able to incorporate their schedule and give people the opportunity to tune in and overlap some of their platforms, it probably works out better for them. Whereas some people, it's just the format of what you're speaking to. So if you're going to do an open forum like this, then it might not be structured well if your platform schedule is a completely different type of forum. Um, and I do follow your YouTube. So I know that your, your one-on-ones might not be something you want to kind of put this into but maybe if you do more of an open format on your youtube channel for a little bit longer maybe you can incorporate this in there so got you thank you so much for that but thank time. you appreciate it. appreciate it cheers thank you is it john next or that was that john J john you're up next yes okay can you hear me i can hear you yes hello yeah I oh, can okay hear you. <clears throat> well uh just want to make a few comments and the first one is is um Recently, I had to stop reading your feed because you were no longer important. But now that you're back on, I'm happy to read your feed again. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> no, but all joking aside, um, you know, I think a lot of this, uh, I'm sure you're uh, familiar with Dr. Stephen Covey's work, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People right. and The Eighth Habit and all that. Those are older books. And, you know, his work is some older work. Uh, but um, 
it all comes down to principles and values. And that's one of the reasons I personally follow you is because of your principles and values. And you're not willing to um, subjugate or throw those aside. You know, that's your hunt at your side where you say, these are my principles and values and I'm going to stick to them. And, you know, in that book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I used to buy that for all my employees and, and have them read it because he goes into those things and he goes into paradigms and he goes into, you know, um, natural laws and a lot of different things. And I just think it's a very, very good book. And, and I also think recently I read your book, The Parasitic Mind, and I think it's an excellent book. Oh, and I you. will be as a consumer. Yeah. You know, as a consumer, I will be buying more of your, your material. And uh, I found you through Dr. Peterson and I started watching you and listening to you. And, and that was one of the things that rung out to me right away was that this is a guy that's not willing to, you know, compromise his values and principles. And those are the kinds of people that I look for. Those are the kind of people that I follow because that's important to me. And so, when it comes down to, you know, there was a lot of things in this discussion. One of them was uh, Tucker Carlson. I think that became an issue uh, with him, with Fox. I think they wanted him to compromise his principles and values, and he was not willing to do so. Exactly. And yeah. And so I think that that probably caused, you know, some consternation, and maybe some contempt between him and the upper, you know, upper level managers or owners. And I think bottom line, that's probably what it's going to come down to is that he was not willing to compromise his proud, his principles and values. And um, a couple other things came up. One was uh, JFK Jr. Uh, running as a Democrat for president. And, you know, he recently made a comment where he had, I guess, according to the New York Times, he had made a statement um, saying that the COVID uh, protocols were were, you know, kind of had in line with Holocaust stuff. And I don't know the exact con context of it all. And I didn't go read the New York Times article or, or whatever. But he had stated that he didn't say it, but he had later admitted, he later apologized for it. And to me, that struck me because he was compromising his principles and values. You know, he said he, he admitted to it, apologized for it because he was trying to protect his family. But to me, that's a bad paradigm because it's a flawed paradigm because, you know, you don't protect your family that way. You don't protect yourself that way. If you're going to protect your family, you have to protect yourself. And I'm retired now, but earlier, you know, on in my career or different fields of my career, um, I dealt with a lot of those issues where people wanted me to compromise my principles out and values, and I just wouldn't do it. And there were times when I actually faced, um, you know, the, the, the probability that I might be fired. But my, my viewpoint on it was always, you know, that's fine. I can go find another job, but I can never, ever replace my principles and values. Right. And so I just wanted to bring that up in the conversation well, to you. Thank you. And then I have a, I have a, I have a question for you, if you sure. don't mind. And as a, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a religious question, but it's also kind of a biological, you know, perspective in your field. 
I'm curious, you know, how do you see, and I'm not completely familiar with your, you know, religious background or takes on, on religion or that kind of thing, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of curious in your field, how do you see evolutionary biology and how do you compare it with the religious you know aspect of both you know being being jewish and and perhaps from a christian yes. you know Boy, perspective that's a, that's a that's a that's a question that needs about an hour but okay let me try to tackle that uh first uh i i agree with you authenticity and sticking you know sticking to your guns when it comes to your principles is uh is the whole enchilada that's why i'm very drawn to people like tucker that's why i love megan kelly uh yes they're honey badgers in terms of their you know personhoods but they just don't care they stick to their guns and they're inflappable that way and i'm very very drawn to that christopher hitchens of course might be the granddaddy of that i mean so much so that even for someone like me who doesn't uh, necessarily equivocate when it comes to different positions I sometimes would wince when I would see him take certain positions because you know, I don't know if you guys remember. I think he had appeared on Fox when Jerry Falwell had, you know, uh, passed away, and uh, he was just—I mean, the, the 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 body, the 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 dead body was still warm, and he was just blasting into him. And at, at the time, I remember I kind of winced, thinking, "Oh man, don't we don't we at least owe the guy twenty four hours of respect?" You know. <laughs> And and but then I thought of it. I said, you know what? This guy just does not equivocate. He, I mean, I mean that. And I think, as I've often said, all of the interesting people that 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 you want to read, that you want to listen to, share one trait in common. That is, they take positions. Right? Fence sitters, equivocators are never going to be the ones who bring in the ratings. They're never going to be the ones who sell the most books. They're never going to be the ones that 100,000 people go to see because fence-sitters and equivocators have nothing interesting to say. It's risky to take positions, but that's what makes you compelling and interesting. So whenever I'm thinking about, oh, you know, maybe I need to be more sweet to everybody, and the reality is I am very sweet in my personal conduct, but when it comes to the truth, I don't give a shit if your feelings are hurt. The truth is more important than your feelings. And so, so I hear you fully. Regarding your question about religion and evolution and so on, I mean, on a personal level, uh, yes, you're right. I'm I'm Jewish. I'm very Jewish in that you know it is part of my identity. I was you know I escaped Lebanon because I'm Jewish. I was almost killed because I was Jewish. My parents were tortured because they were Jewish. So few people have lived their religions the way that we have. And so in that sense, historically, you know. Uh, uh, sociologically, if you'd like, culturally, I'm very Jewish. Now, sometimes people get confused when I say I can be Jewish without necessarily buying into all of the religious elements. In other words, I don't think that if there is a God, he cares about whether I light the candles at 421, but if I light it at 422, but boy, what an asshole I am. I, I don't believe that the granddaddy in the, in the sky... Uh, really cares if I eat prosciutto or not. It turns out that if I'm born born Christian, then prosciutto is totally fine. But if I'm born in Mecca or in Tel Aviv, then prosciutto is an absolute no-no. So God seems to be very, very concerned about my dietary choices. And he has completely different prescriptions depending on where 
I was accidentally born, right? So that seems to be utter bullshit to me. So people think that when I say things like that, I am hostile to religion, and that's absolutely false. As a matter of fact, from an evolutionary perspective, I recognize that the default value for humans is to be religious. In other words, it, it is contrary to the default nature of mankind to not be religious. Why? Because uh, we are, in that sense, regrettably born with a big prefrontal cortex that knows that we are on a death penalty time clock, meaning that the party is going to end. We're aware of our mortality. If I have high cholesterol, I can go see my physician, take a pill and bring down my LDL scores. But I don't have a pill for the looming mortality. Oh, no, but wait, there is a pill. It's called religion. Take this pill, son, and don't worry. You'll be reuniting with Roscoe any day now. And you'll see him and you'll both run along in heaven. I, I, and I'm not saying this facetiously. That helps, right? It, it makes life bearable. How do you explain that the four-year-old kid that you love so much got stricken with cancer and now is dead? Oh, that's because God calls his angels to be close to him. That makes me feel good to believe that. So there are all sorts of very functional reasons, very rational reasons in that sense for why I should be a believer. Now, the reason why I'm not a believer, and of course many people might disagree with this, is that my deontological purity def defense of truth does not allow me to believe in that which I don't see the evidence for it. Now, of course, I, my point is not now to get into a, a debate as to whether there is evidence for God or not. But as far as I'm concerned, nobody has died and then told <clears throat> us about what happens after we die. Uh, you know, if this were a scientific hypothesis, there's very, very little proof of it. So if I want to be an equivocator, I will say, okay, well, I'm agnostic. That's what, you know, even Richard Dawkins says, he's not a full atheist because you can't be a full atheist because we don't know. Well, I am a full atheist, but I do fully appreciate the divine. Now, what do I mean by that? The, this conversation that we are having right now for the past two plus hours is a spiritual experience, right? I am connected through the magic of science to hundreds of people that otherwise I might never have the pleasure of connecting with. I'm exchanging in very deep ideas and then everybody hopefully is going to log off and we're all going to be just a little bit, a little bit richer for it. Well, God damn, that's pretty spiritual, right? I could look at my beautiful children and love them in a way that is unimaginable and I can feel a great reverence for the magic of life in that way. So I can still be very spiritual. And I don't mean that in the cliche, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I mean that life itself is so magisterial that I can be completely driven by an ethos of awe inspiration without me having to couch it in a granddaddy. And again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful for those who believe that's great. As a matter of fact, it, it makes my day-to-day -day living that much more magical in that I do the things that I do without any concern for a grand inquisitor who is judging my 
pros and cons. I am honest, not because I will go to hell if I were dishonest, but for no other reason than the beauty of being honest. I pursue academic pursuits for no other reason than the purity of truth. I think there is a real magic to that. So, God damn, I should not. That, that, that little snippet right here is like a Martin Luther King speech I just gave you. <laughs> there you go. God damn. I don't know where I came up with that. But no, but in all seriousness, uh, I think that uh, one can totally be wedded to their religion as a historical construct, as a continuity of a, of a, of a culture, of a people's. Uh, because people say, oh, you're a hypocrite, Dr. Sadhawa. You always say that you're Jewish and so on, but you're an atheist. Well, listen, if I asked you to right now list the 300 most famous Jews that you know, that you've heard of in history, 299 would probably be non-believers and yet would be very Jewish. So I think you can totally be wedded to your religious history without necessarily being uh, very strong in religiosity. I'm not sure if I've answered your question. I hope I have. Oh, yeah, that's fascinating. And and that answers my question because I have seen in the past some of your content and wondered to myself, you know, exactly where is this, where is he coming right. from? You know, what what is his perspective of this? Because it seems at times there's mixed signals and and uh, from from, you know, your perspective and so that's what I wanted to ask you about. And I appreciate and respect you for answering that honestly. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, you know, it, it makes sense to me, everything that you're saying. And uh, it, I think a lot of times, you know, people get caught up on this stuff. And, and you know, it's, it's again, it goes back to ideology, just like with the wokeism and everything else. Everybody has their own beliefs and ideology behind everything. But... Uh, yeah, I appreciate you answering that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Cheers. Uh, Aristotle, who's next? Okay, so if you have spoken already, please drop down to listener mode so we can add more people to the stage. Dr. Sad, when they do that, you can add additional speakers. Robin is next, and then following Robin is Dr. Andrew. If you would like to speak, just raise your hand in that little heart icon, and then JP will be after Dr. Andrew, who's after Robin. And Robin, you're up next. Hi, good, good evening. evening. Thank you for letting me speak. I feel like Ed um, McMahon, I have by the way. two. I'm sorry. I feel like Ed McMahon tonight. By the way. I appreciate <laughs> this. I feel very honored. You have a great speaking you voice. You do. You do. Um, <laughs> um, I have two thoughts. First of all, I am a clinician, not an academic, but one of the ways um, academics get around some of their university regulations around what they can or cannot say on campus is to ask me to come speak to their classes because I have no issue saying to a class of therapy students, you do not do activism in the clinical office. Um, and they cannot get away with saying that. So I just wanted to offer that to any academics. If you can bring clinicians on site, they can often say what maybe you can't say or are afraid to but say. Before you go on, sorry, um, th thank you for that comment. But uh, Aren't many clinicians worried that they might say something that would cause, uh, you know, their clients to boycott them and so on? It, are they not also kind of coward using different calculus into not speaking the truth? 
Maybe. I am pretty out there with my message, whether it be on Twitter or Facebook. I use my real name. I've only ever had, I've been doing therapy for 20 years. I've had two patients leave my practice because they somehow or another found out my political views. Um, otherwise, I've never had an issue with it, and I'm not afraid of it. And I'm not really afraid of my state pulling my license. I, I, if they pull my license, that just gives me more time to speak. So I'm not worried about it. Got you. Um, yeah. My other comment, just as an aside, I was listening to you talk about um, religion and spirituality and faith. And I just wanted to add a comment just for those listening. I am a believer as a Christian and my experience of magic isn't out of some kind of duty to God, but out of awe for the gifts he gives me. So like when I see the dew on the grass, that's a gift from him to me. Um, when I see my children, they're a gift from him to me. So when I, when I have this beautiful conversation with you, it's a relationship is a gift. So it's not out of a sense of duty. It's out of a sense of gratitude. And I just wanted to offer that for anybody who might be wondering what some faith is like. Thank you. I appreciate that. I truly, thank you so much, Robin. Is it Robin? Yeah. Yes. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers. Aristotle. Okay. Next we have Dr. Andrew. Dr. Andrew, take it away. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking the time here. Um, I'm, I'm a postdoctoral fellow in wildlife ecology in Canada. And my question is, uh, how do you deal with the, the mental health toll of uh, taking a stance, which is maybe not popular, yes. you know, especially online? Yes. Thank you so much for that question. You know, I don't know if you saw my, or I'm sure many of you didn't, so I'll just and if you have it, it's still worth repeating. In my last appearance on Joe Rogan, I mentioned a an episode I had, which was the, the first time I had experienced something like this. Uh, it turned out to be a panic attack. Uh, so it's going to speak to your, your question about you know, mental health issues. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a very strong, uh, you know, backbone in that I have a very strong sense of, you know, personhood. I'm, I'm very self-assured, but, you know, anyone can be, you know, if you try hard enough, can be damaged. Now, in my case, I wasn't feeling consciously uh, strained, and yet I was driving with my family, my kids and, and the wife. We were going to our local Peruvian rotisserie chicken, and I started feeling as though it felt as though I was like having a heart attack. I, I, and I wasn't, I wasn't stressed. I wasn't, uh, you know, worried about something. I wasn't obsessing about anything. I wasn't having ruminative thoughts. And uh, I said to my wife, you know, I, I'm having a hard time breathing. Let's, let's stop for a second. And so I stopped and then I started getting tingling in my fingers and it just, it's kind of like this in, intense wave that comes over you. So we rushed to the hospital and, uh, and actually, it was it was quite incredible because as the the the, the physician, the the emergency room doctor who who saw me, turns out that he recognized me, knew who I was, although he was very discreet about it because he was saying, you know, what what's you know what's happening, you know, in your life. And I said, well, do you do you have do you know who I am? And you know, it's always hard to ask that because you don't want to sound as though you're you're being a diva. So he goes, actually, I I do know very much who you are. Blah blah blah. And uh, so to your, to your question, whether consciously or not, it catches up to you. And actually, when I was 
thinking about whether I wanted to share that story on Joe Rogan, I was, maybe I should say I, I was ashamed that I was thinking about, well, if I say it with that, uh, you know, make me appear as though I'm less, you know, of a honey badger. And then I said, fuck that. I mean, that would make me inauthentic. If I modulated how I was feeling, a truthful thing that happened to me, that maybe if I share it, it might help others, and I don't do it, then uh, how can I be talking about truth and authenticity? And actually, that's exactly the reason why I said, no, I actually have to go on Joe Rogan and exactly tell that story. And and I guess the way that I was, uh, you know, proven to to have had the right instinct is that then I heard from a lot of people who wrote to me privately and said, you don't know how much your story helped me, blah, blah, blah. So all this to tell you, uh, it does take its toll. Probably the the time that I most felt it uh, is not so much, you know, because of, you know, all the, the academics who are angry with me and all that. The place that I felt it the most was when I was receiving an inordinate amount of death threats that had started around, I think it was in uh, fall of 2017, which led to me having to have a security protocol when I walked into the university. The university then came with me to to the Montreal police, not the campus police, the, the, the full Montreal police. And, you know, we had to file a report and there was, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so what would end up happening to me is that I would walk to class and I felt under siege because I didn't know whether, oh, I think maybe the next minute might be the last minute of my life. Or oh, maybe now walking into the elevator is when they're going to get me. Okay, now there's two guys walking behind me in the hallway. Maybe they're the fuckers who are going to kill me. And, you know, I'm hardly one who who shies away from, you know, I'm very, I'm someone who very much stands tall. But I felt, you know, if I'm going to put it, the discussion to a hormonal level, you know, my cortisol levels were probably through the roof. I felt as though I was under siege. And when my wife would come to pick me up at the end of, you know, the lecture, and I would be whisked to the car, I would literally have something akin to like a, a post-traumatic stress reaction where I'm like, oh, thank God, I get to see my children another week until next week's class. So I think that's when a lot of the the kind of underlying anxiety symptoms happened because there was a real existential threat to you know maybe all of those death threats were just uh you know keyboard keyboard warriors who were never going to see it through but i don't know that right and i was really getting tons of them more recently this past fall i had my first in-person death threat while walking with my son uh so that was not pretty and that also had to involve detectives and all sorts of things so you know, frankly, I think that's the part that bothers me the most. I, 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 I don't care too much about what my colleagues think and what some asshole on Twitter thinks and so on. Uh, it's more the fact that I feel somewhat of a sitting duck at not being able to know. You know, if you come at me straight and I know that you're coming at me, you might kill me, I might kill you, but at least I know where you're coming from. What was that? What is that? What was that noise? So people have an option to make a sound effect 
um, generally we don't do that when people are speaking. And I believe on your side, there's a way to kill it. It's a little magic wand button, so I can oh. make a, I can make a little ringing noise. Um, but but again, generally we don't do that, and okay. you can kill that on your end. Got you. Okay, let me. I could. Okay, got it. Are you for the for the record that that wasn't me? But <laughs> but thank you for your story. I appreciate. Yeah, that. no, no, no problem. Yeah, I, look, uh, the way that I have also dealt with mental health issues is uh, I, you know, I lost a lot of weight. I eat healthily. I exercise like a madman, and that's really my uh, drug of choice. It it really uh, regulates my, my mood. It, it makes me feel good. I get the dopamine hit. So, but yeah, it's a struggle, especially when you live as a, you know, a public profile life that I do the reality though. I mean, I don't want to kind of end it on and this, the answer to this question on a bad note and that, you know, I'm amazed and, and, and truly flattered and blessed and filled with gratitude at the number of people. I mean, if you would have told me 20 years ago when I was a young professor that, you know, 20 years later, you know, I'd walk down in any place. I could be walking on a beach in the Bahamas in a semi-deserted beach and someone will come up to me. It truly is uh, humbling to to see the kind of reach that you can have if you get out there and, and, and mix it up. Uh, but you're right. There is a flip side to that, and that is that it's it's a very stressful life but hey i'm interacting with all you lovely people i can't complain so thank you for that uh who's next um jp you had had your hand up and then put it down did you want to speak and if you did then ravi is next then choit is next thank you no yeah it's just very quickly um dr sad um i just wanted to come up and share that uh, we with my wife, we entered the, the uh, social audio phenomena very early, and uh, I want to say that this is uh, this is a, an event that uh, we've been awaiting for for the past two years of of someone of your stature be here. So I just want to. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. That. I appreciate those words. Is it? Thank you so much. Is it Ravi next? I I think Ravi, you're up next. Ravi. Hey, Kat. My friend, it's always great, a privilege to hear you. Uh, the mental horsepower on this call with everybody, including you, is, is pretty amazing. So um, feel privileged to be here. Um, you know, I had a question for you, but let me give you just a little bit of context um, for it. You know, I, so I got married last September to uh, my wife, is an Irish, thank you, an Irish immigrant. So she, like, you know, I'm like a tall Indian boy from Missouri, and she's like a pale redhead with freckles. It's, it's amazing how we found each other. Anyway, um, but the thing is, and, and, you know, she's an Irish woman, so she, she her tachometer idols it annoyed. Um, but in any case, you know, it's, it's funny. The uh, immigrants have a very interesting view of the United States, and a very different one, I think a very positive one. And for my birthday last month, what we did was... Um, uh, we, we went for our first trip to Washington, D.C., which for her was, you know, I've been there a thousand times, but for any of you on the call or listening, if you've never been, you just have to go. And when we went, um, you know, obviously we went to like the National Archives and saw the Constitution and, and saw like the memorials. And it was, it was amazing to see her reaction to this country in terms of its founding. 
and we were looking at these documents and it almost got, we got kind of emotional at, at like the, the Thomas Jefferson Memorial. And you see these people and you look at like how they, their thought process and the statesmen that they were, meaning, you know, they were like, you look at like Benjamin Franklin, he's like the polymath, right? They're all like polymaths, they're engineers, they're scientists, they're philosophers, they're great writers, they're great at civics. Um, where has that gone? How, how, how do you, do you feel like that that's not emphasized oh, in our I culture anymore. And, and, and why is, you know, and I, and I feel like if we lost that, is, is, that some, is that part of the reason why we're not, uh, you know, is that something we need to improve? I mean, I just think about that. And I'm like, I strive to be that way. I, the operational word being strive. But is that, uh, you know, how come they, those people were so clear thinking, how come they didn't seem to succumb to the same idea parasites that you describe in the book? What was special about that period of that time, so I, I guess? How do we yeah, recapture that? Phenomenal question, Ryan. Great, great, to, great to see you here. Uh, so in, the, in a sense, it's as if I had uh, you know, paid you money to set up this question, which, of course, I haven't, because in my forthcoming book, I, in the, I have a chapter on uh, uh, variety seeking. It, right? It's a book about you know, it's a it's a mixture of my personal anecdotes of, you know, why I am happy in the way that I am and uh, coupled with, of course, ancient wisdoms on this issue and the latest science. Right. So it's a melange of, you know, God stories and ancient wisdoms, Epictetus. Here comes Seneca. Here comes Aristotle, coupled with the latest neuroscience and you know behavioral science and so on. And in chapter five, uh, with the variety seeking chapter, I talk about. Yeah, of course, you, you all know the maxim, you know, variety is the spice of life, at least in some occasions. I talk about sexual variety seeking. I talk about food variety seeking. And I talk to your question, Ravi, about intellectual variety seeking. And that, that so academia, at least, is structured. The reward mechanisms are structured that you should be a deep, deep specialist, right? And so it is frowned upon for an academic to be a polymath. You should publish the next 40 papers in the exact same area with plus epsilon incremental. Uh, and that's how you build a, you know, a respectable line of research. And of course, there is great value in, in having specialists. But some of the biggest thinkers, to your point, Ravi, some of the biggest breakthroughs in science happen at the intersection of disciplines, right? Mapping of the human genomes could not have come from one discipline. And so, uh, and by the way, I, I often play the game of, you know, if you, if you could invite 10 people to your, uh, you know, historical dinner, who would those 10 people be? And, and on, my, on the top of my list is Leonardo da Vinci, precisely because, I mean, he literally is the Renaissance man. He's the ultimate polymath. So I think to your question, Ravi, uh, academia does not promote broad thinking. And one of the reasons I think I've been able to uh, find the voice that I have amongst the public is precisely because I am interdisciplinarian in every meaningful way, right? So I'm happy to publish papers in medicine, as I have. I mean, what, what does a professor at a business school, uh, you know, what is he doing publishing papers on Munchausen syndrome by proxy or on the evolutionary roots of suicide or on 
the evolutionary roots of sex differences in OCD symptomatology. And yet, I don't give a shit. I found those interesting, those problems compelling. I thought I had something that would be interesting to say in those areas. And notwithstanding that many of the gatekeepers in my field said, please don't publish in these journals because that's not what we expect of you. I said, yeah, well, I don't give a shit. Now, that did affect me in that the gatekeepers in academia were precisely the ones who looked at my CV and said, wow, you're very productive, but you seem to be scattered all over the place. And my answer was, I would think that that's something that you would find, find laudable. The fact that I can publish in economics and in evolutionary psychology and in consumer psychology and in bibliometrics and in politics is a benefit, but it isn't in academia. So right starting from school, we learn to be specialists. And then you go to graduate school and you get your PhD and you're a hyper-specialist. There's a great book by, I think his name, I, I cite him in my forthcoming book. I think his name is David Epstein, or I can't remember his name. The book is about, uh, it's titled Range. It's specifically on the tension between the specialists and the generalists. There is a time for there to for you to be a specialist, but there's also uh, an important time for you to be a synthetic, broad thinker who, in my case, seeks consilience. Consilience is the fancy term for unity of knowledge, trying to unify many disparate areas of, of knowledge. And I think I mean, many people don't know this, but Ravi and I have had a chance to communicate, you know, in, in other contexts. And one of the reasons that uh, I think perhaps drew you to, you know, to contact me and then why I was also interested in your project is because I'm not bound by disciplinary things. If someone pitches something that that intrigues me, I just go for it, which, by the way, leads me to another chapter in my book, which is live life, you know, life as a playground, Right. The idea is that even when we pursue the most serious of things, things like science, what is science other than the ultimate form of play? It's the highest form of intellectual play, right? I mean, what does a scientist do? He's, he or she is solving a puzzle. Instead of, instead of solving a 1,000-piece puzzle that you buy at Walmart, you're trying to see which of these 1,000 variables actually link up to each other in a meaningful way so that I can build some correlational structure or some causal structure. So all of science is play. And so uh, so to your point, I think I exactly address the, the kinds of issues that you are addressing. And, and if you forgive the, the shameless plug, and if I can uh, please ask you, I didn't ask for tips for this three-hour chat. I didn't ask for money. But if I can get you to commit for many of you to go and pre-order a copy of my book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, it would really matter. Not so much because the, the you know buying of one book is going to get me much money. It's probably going to get me $2. But if enough people pre-order the book, here's what happens. The first week that the book is released, all of the queued pre-orders are instantiated as sales in that first week, which means it increases the chances of the book hitting the bestsellers list in week one, which then serves as a domino effect for it to then do big things. So if I can get you, there's, I don't know, there's a couple of hundred people here, two, 300 people. If I can get, you know, many of you to commit to pre-ordering, boy, that's going to help. And please spread the word. Thank you so much for your question, Ravi. 
Thanks, Gad. Really appreciate it. And, and I, I consider it done. D despite us all knowing that Trudeau is going to take some cut of that, we'll, we, I'm sure we'll be happy <laughs> to had, over that for you. You had to bring in that negative part, didn't you? Thanks, Gerardo. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, who, who's next, Aristotle? So, Chati is up next. Okay. Hello, I can, can hear, hear you. Hey, Dr. Zad. Uh, just want to say thank you for, you know, doing this and giving everybody a chance to you know, speak with you and also for helping me uh, find my textbooks. Well. <laughs> you found them? <laughs> Have you found them? Yeah, I did. Oh, I did, very yeah. good. I'm very happy. <laughs> and also, uh, I had two quick questions. I am on break at work, sure. so I want to make it quick. Um, the first question, will you be doing the audio book? Hope, I'm hoping. And the second question, uh, we've been seeing a lot of conversations about intelligence and IQ lately and people trying to debunk everything. And, you know, I'm really big into evolutionary psychology. I've been reading lots of books, whether it be your books, Evolution yeah. Desire, uh, Alpha God by Hector Garcia. And, you know, we have, and, uh, we have, you know, these certain traits due to evolutionary pressures and genetics. But when it comes to intelligence, it's like, it's one thing we can't talk about, or again, if we do, they'll call you eugenicists or racist. So I was wondering, are we doing more harm by not having these conversations? And do you see that changing? Yes. Uh, so I'll take your uh, second question first. Yes, we are doing great harm by not talking about it. You know, incidentally, what I'm about to talk about is even more corrosive than simply. I mean, you're exactly right that now to simply state that there is such a thing as intelligence, that people are not born with equal potentiality in terms of their intellectual acuity that itself makes you a nazi but the story that i'm going to tell is even more uh, uh if you like uh, corrosive in that so this is 1996 i finished my phd in 1994 so i'm a young uh professor you know two years into my career i'm about to speak at the international congress of psychology which happened to be held that year in montreal my, my home city uh and so I was giving a talk in a, at a session on, you know, cognitive psychology. I was going to talk about, you know, uh, information search under time pressure. So like very, very non-controversial kind of straight experimental cognitive psychology stuff. And, but yet the room was packed. It was something like maybe 1,500 people. And I knew that they weren't there for me. I was an absolute nobody. I don't think anybody you know, had heard of me or very few had. So I knew that who, you know, whomever was there was not there to hear me speak. And so I'm thinking, why are there so many people in this room? I guess I hadn't done my homework to find out who was speaking at the same session as me. And it turns out, I don't know if any of you know him, arguably one of the most despised psychologists of the past 50 years, uh, 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 I can't remember, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking out on his name, uh, Rushmore, not Rushmore, what's his name, Philip, uh, Philip Rushton, I think. Uh, the, if anybody remembers the name, you, uh, let, let me just check it on, online. I can't remember his name. I think it's Philip Rushton. Anyways, it doesn't matter what his name is. He, he passed away now. He was the gentleman who had spent his entire career not only studying intelligence in general, but studying arguably the most corrosive thing that you can study, which I think you can all guess, race differences in intelligence. Now, if there is one forbidden knowledge that you should never touch, oh, my, my wife just texted me. She said, yes, it is Rushton. Philip Rushton, that's the name. Thank you. Thank you, love. Uh, so, so Philip Rushton, you can check out his work, had 
you know, he had, he had stated, look, I'm not, I, I don't have any racist bone in my body. I'm simply pursuing truth because it's an interesting question, just like we would expect uh, evolutionary based differences across groups on other traits. There is no conceptual reason why we shouldn't expect it to arise on, you know, a, in this case, a, a mental ability, a general mental ability like, you know, intelligence or, or what's called G. And so, hey, let the chips where, let the chips fall where they may. This is the result. And so he was presenting research on, you know, uh, differences in intelligence between, uh, I think he had four groups, black male, white male, black female, and white female. And at that point, I realized that it was him who was presenting. And to, to the to the earlier gentleman who asked you know, about mental health issues, uh, I thought I was going to have a heart attack because I thought, well, they're just going to lynch me now by, by by association i'm dead i'm finished and so i remember you know he's presenting he, i think he was the gentleman immediately before me presenting and so i never i've never been someone who gets very nervous at you know speaking in front of crowds uh, you know i that's not what stresses me and i was really sweating i was like i'm dead now here's the good news uh let's say there were 1500 people in the room, the minute that he finishes and starts walking out about 1425 out of the 1500 left straight running after him. And that was arguably the only time in my life where I was incredibly happy to be speaking in front of a next to empty room. Now, there were still about 75 people, but 75 people in a place that just a few moments ago had had 1500 people in it uh, looked pretty empty. And I was thanking the, I was thanking God. I think I had become a believer again at that point. So to answer your question in a long winded way, I think it's terrible to have anything resembling forbidden knowledge in academia. It is not the business of an academic to worry about what might be the downstream consequences of their research. You do the research as long as you pursue it, assiduously, unbiasedly, uh, you know, by adhering to the tenets of the scientific method. If you do that, then let the chips fall where they may. That's, by the way, one of the other reasons why I don't think that you should judge research based on its practical applications either. Uh, I often remind people that uh, Fermat, or in French you say Fermat, the, the French number theorist who several hundred years ago had solved several uh, number theory theorems who that sat and collected dust for you know uh, hundreds of years with no applications suddenly found their applications with the advent of cryptography. So research that had had no application for hundreds of years suddenly had quite important applications. So again, I am very deontological in the in the pursuit of truth. Just pursue truth honestly, and then don't worry about it. What was your first question, if I may ask you again, just to remind me? Uh, thank you for that. And uh, the first question uh, was about because I do. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. Lots of audience. Yes. So I, I often joke, although, frankly, it's it really it's not a joke. It's 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 true that the absolute number one and maybe only criticism that I've received for the parasitic mind, maybe it was amplified when Joe Rogan decided to chastise me on his show for like 10 minutes for not having read it myself. 
But the number one complaint that I've received about the parasitic mind is that it wasn't read in my voice. I wasn't the narrator. And some of you may or may not know that that decision ultimately is not up to the author because what happens is that the, the audio rights to your book are purchased by an audio publisher and then they can do whatever they want. They can say, oh, we absolutely want you to do it and here is X number of dollars, please do it. Or they could say, no, no, we, we have our guy, we have our process. And so I don't know if, it, if it's because it was during the, excuse me, around the COVID time or you know just before, whatever. But I had said, I'm happy to do it, but I had offered you know, whatever the price would be, because it takes about a week of full-time reading to get through a book, roughly. I mean, like, uh, let's say, Monday to Friday, full days to, to read a whole book, to produce a whole book audio. And so they had, they had insisted, no, no, we've, we've got a guy, it's great, and so on. So as much as I might insist, and I, I really truly do understand that people, you know, have, you know, they, they know my voice, they, they, they listen to me, so they'd like to hear it in my voice, especially these are, many in many cases, personal stories, at least in the parasitic mind of my childhood and so on. And in this forthcoming book, there are tons of personal stories that I share. So I will certainly go to bat and re-insist that I really would like to do it. And But ultimately, it's not my decision. Once they buy the audio rights, it's their right to... J just like, for example, with a book cover. The, now, by courtesy, you don't, you know, a publisher is not going to say, this is the book cover and there's nothing you can do about it. They're going to consult with you, but ultimately the final decision is theirs to have. And so to answer your question in a long-winded way, I will absolutely try my best to read it. If I don't, it won't be because I didn't try. Thank you so much for your two questions. Thank Thank, thank you, Dr. Ted. I'll make sure to start a petition. <laughs> Please do, and, and tag my audio publisher. I think it's the same audio publisher as the as the Parasitic Mind. So just say, uh, we want the sexy, baritone, Lebanese, very white voice of Dr. Saad, and hopefully they'll uh, they'll be swayed. That'll be right at the top. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, sir. It. Cheers, you too. Uh, who's next? Who's next, Aristotle? All right, Dr. Sad. So a couple of house cleaning. If we could have some speakers drop down to listener mode, you can pull some additional people to the stage. And if they could raise their hand, we could have additional speakers. And then as you've been speaking up in the nest, I've been putting up um, the books or authors that you've linked to or, or that you've spoken to. So the links are there. So are, the you link like a, are you an angel? Are you sent from the heavens? Are you God? What what have I done to deserve Aristotle coming and helping me in this way? Thank you, sir. I am so, I am blessed. So so here's what you did to to deserve my help. Um, I at one point during the pandemic got to 250 pounds, was drinking way too much alcohol and drinking far and eating far too much food. Um, had a come to Jesus, who is my wife, moment, who said, "Yeah, time for you to not be so fat." And I was listening to your talk with Joe Rogan as I was on a 15-mile walk, and I was 35 pounds lighter. And the first 45 minutes of your discussion with Joe Rogan was the exact journey that I had gone on. Oh, my God. And I became a tremendous fan of yours after that. Oh, can I? To the point of spirituality you gave me goosebumps that's what spirituality is guys my god what a beautiful moment thank you so I, i'm honored that i was able to uh you know offer you some 
you know, positive influence. And I'm, uh, I'm thankful to hear that you've lost. So where, where are you at now? You were at 250. What are you at now? I'm at, um, I'm hovering around 205. Um, I'd like to get to 185. Got some work to do. I've gone um, whole food, plant-based with some animal protein. Um, pr pr pretty much following the blue zones. Um, I've, I'm on a lot of the nutrition spaces. And my biggest pet peeve is everybody wants to say they have the answer. And the reality is, is there is no answer. Exactly. We only have long-term epidemiological studies on populations that don't smoke, drink lightly, participate in moderate daily activity, have strong social connections, and eat a primarily whole food plant-based diet. There are some variations within that, but those are the populations that live the longest. You can tell me all you want about your carnivore diet and the hootsie running around Africa eating <laughs> nothing but gazelles and honey, but there are no long-term studies that should demonstrate that that's true. Show me it's true and we can have a discussion, but the only long-term studies are on populations that meet those six criteria. There's no magic pill, there's no magic diet. You have to get out on the pavement, you have to work out every day, you have to, again, whole food, plant-based, does not mean you can't enjoy salmon, doesn't mean you're never gonna have a steak. So I have the same discussion with the vegans as well. There is no population that has been 100% vegan. It doesn't exist. There is no anthropological data for that. So we have to take the best evidence we have, which in, in my readings are the blue zones, and take that, and I'm going to use that as the blueprint to live. Everything else is very interesting. I'd love to read about rampamycin. I love reading about metaformin, which now they're kind of pulling away from hasn't really shown to have the effects that they want. Um, so I'm trying to find, a, 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 reading the P Peter Atiyah book now, and I love his discussion of evidence-informed. And he's very open to be able to say, I don't know. Now, one day maybe we can have a longer discussion because I'm an agnostic. And you may call me a fence-sitter, but I'm very comfortable with being able to say, I don't know. Right. I don't need to attribute anything to the magic man in the sky. I can say, I don't know. And maybe I'll never know. Maybe I will know. But I don't have to attribute things to, as you know, the, the man in the robe, the flying spaghetti monster, however you want to describe it. So I'm very comfortable in my agnosticism. Boy, you are living up to uh, that avatar or bio picture that you have. <laughs> I, I t well, you know, it's funny because I, I work for a, a decent sized corporation and I have some fairly strong political views and I joined Twitter to be able to engage in robust discussion, but that will be very frowned upon at work. Exactly. So I, I have to stay anonymous, Ho unfortunately. But hopefully nobody will recognize your voice. You well, ho ho hopefully. I've been told I've got a fairly distinctive voice. So There you go. If, if they do, too bad. <laughs> well, thank you so um, much. Uh, all right. Who's do we have any other speakers that would wish to come up next? No. Okay. Uh, how about request? Should I bring in anybody else? Oh. Yes. If, if, there are other, if there are other people that are waiting on the speaker list, you can bring them up, and then we can see what they have to say. Okay. I'm just bringing in people randomly. I'm not using any particular approach. Okay. 
And, and then in the future, when you have a co-host, the co-host can look at their bios and bring people up that have either expertise or again, or a, an alternative point of view. And that can help move the discussion what, along. Do you think it like, let's suppose I wanted to keep it in. I mean, in this case, I was, you know, fortunate enough to have you. But let's, you know, should I just try to get my wife to do this? Would, would that's is this something that you need big technical expertise to be able to be a co-host or is this something that could be learned quickly? Not at all. Your wife would be a wonderful choice. Oh, okay, great. Did you hear? And we have Taylor Hikes up next. Okay. Taylor, take it away. Hi, Dr. Sad. Um, Hi there. I actually feel like, um, I don't know who you are. So I, I feel like I live under a rock. This is the first time I've heard you speak at all. Okay. Um, so this is like the wonderful thing about spaces. Um, it brings people to new people to listen, to learn. Um, I actually found someone who was in your space and just decided, oh, I'm going to check this out. So oh, I feel so like cool. I'm a little, so I feel like I'm a little ignorant to who you are and the books that you've written. Um, but I've kind of just kind of glanced through Google just to check. Um, and I know we were talking or other people were talking about academia and the negative and the positive aspects of it. And one of the things I, I don't know if maybe your book covers it or your podcast covers it. Um, but I was wondering if you ever cover what happened to academia, academia that caused it to be so left-leaning or so close to only one set of ideas. Um, right. So that's, that's my only question. Got you. Thank you so much. Uh, well, I mean, I love the, the serendipity of life that led you here. So thank you for following that you know, path. Uh, yeah, so in my last book, uh, so I, I have a forthcoming book in, in July, on a completely different topic. It's the book is called The Sad Truth About Happiness. Sad, S-A-A-D. That's my last name. So that's a different book. But my last book called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense, exactly addresses the question that you posed, which is what, what, are, you know, what are these parasitic ideas or what I also call idea pathogens? How did they originate? Where did they originate? And... Uh, you know, spoiler alert, uh, they all originate within the university ecosystem. And then as any good, you know, if you if you went to go see a physician and he or she told you you've got a certain disease, uh, then you you would want to hopefully have some solution, right? What, you know, here's what I can do to hopefully resolve the problem. And so toward the end of the, the book, I offer what I call a, you know, a mind vaccine, an inoculation against these idea pathogens. So I, I hope that you'll check out the book. I, I won't repeat all the stuff here just because many people might be already familiar with it. But yes, please, if this is something that interests you, I think you really enjoyed my last book. I hope you check it out. I, yeah, I did add it to my to read list. And I, it looks like there's a couple other books. And I'll add I'll also add the new book that you're about to release as well. Oh, thank you it sounds so like I would be highly interested. Yes, that, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Cheers, Taylor. Thank you. Who's next, Aristotle? Hi, guys. Thank you very much. This is uh, Indy.ai, a business scientist working on AI, blockchain, using a lot of behavioral methods, uh, local uh, uh, speaking. And we created a wonderful uh, meme calendar where uh, people can... Uh, imports on it or describe their memories with favorite people on dedicated digital meme boards eternally onto the digital space 
So this is one of those particular products we worked on AI where which actually strengthens the relations, bonds between people, families, countries, religions, ethics, whatnot. So I'm very glad to be in this space and I was just passing through and oh, very glad to be so into much. this space. Great to meet thank you. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Cheers. Aristotle. All right. We, we have no hands up and it looks like we do need some people to drop down into listener mode so that you can bring additional speakers up. So if you've had a chance to speak, please drop down to listener mode. Uh, by the way, we have now just entered uh, Joe Rogan uh, uh, duration because I think we just finished three hours. That is some impressive. I mean, you guys are some interesting folks for us to go for three hours. You're the best. Uh, okay, so let me go to the request. So I am now trying to uh, choose new people. Is that right, Aristotle? Yes, you're going to bring up some new speakers. And then when they, come, when they become a speaker, they need to raise their hand and then we'll take them in order. Okay, let me just uh, do some people here. Now, I'm just going from top down. Is that a bad thing and that I'm being unfair to someone or does it matter? Is there any rhyme or reason to how they're being listed on my request list? I believe that they're coming in, in temporal order. So therefore, if I'm going to the top ones, they're the last ones who came in. So I should be going down the list because they're the ones who've been waiting the longest. I believe so. Okay. I, 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 I can't be 100% sure on that. Okay, let me try that then. Uh, I'm, I just... And then, John, we're going to give him just a minute to pull some speakers up, then we'll go to you. Okay. Uh, John Doe. Okay. Uh, how many how many more people do I have that I can bring in, Aristotle? Um, I believe your speaker is full. We need another people, another couple of people to drop down. Okay. Um, if you've already spoken, so JP, you've spoken. Zag has spoken. Um, Chuck, if you could drop to, to listener mode, we can bring some additional speakers up. Okay. All right. Let's. Okay. So John Doe, take it away. Hey, John. Are you there, John? John, you need to unmute your mic. Okay, we'll go to Lily and then come back to John. Okay, Lily, take it away. Hi, Dr. Saad. Hi there. Um, I am a Canadian as well, and I've read The Parasitic Mind. Okay, great. And I really enjoyed it. Um, so when I saw you on the space, I wanted to jump on and say thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and I had a question. Um, I'm curious about uh, where you think, do you think it's just happenstance that these, these mind uh, pathogens kind of come up? Or do you think it's by design? Do you think yes. that someone or something is kind of creating these yes. pathogens great, great, to kind of, uh, and can you tell me kind of like who, why, where? <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, so the, the human capacity to be parasitized by idea pathogens is not a contemporary malady, right? So it's, it's not as though you know, humans for the past 30 or 40 years have been afflicted with a lack of, you know, defenses against stupidity and, you know, you know, uh, infectious ideas. What makes the current time period unique are the specific idea pathogens that have parasitized us now, right? So it's not, it's not that in the past, I can't point to countless other contexts where people have done insanely, 
you know, uh, idiotic things or believed idiotic things. What makes the current reality unique? Well, number one is that all of the idea pathogens that I cover in the parasitic mind stem from the university ecosystem. You know, in the past, you might have had religious beliefs that are insane, whereas now it really is that the uh, all of these bad ideas were spawned on university campuses. And to your question about, you know, is there sort of some grand design or, I mean, not to, you didn't say the word conspiracy, but no, there isn't sort of a grand designer of having released all these ideas. So I do think to the quite the word you use is happenstance. I think that if you look at the different idea pathogens, each of them happened at different time periods. So for example, cultural relativism, the idea that, you know, who are we to judge other cultures? There, there are no human universals. Each culture has to be judged on its own, you know, in its own idiosyncratic you know, context and so on. That originated with the cultural anthropologist Franz Boas close to 100 years ago. And then, and then his graduate students took that mantle, including some of you may have heard of her, Margaret Mead, who argued in a profoundly idiotic way that even something as apparently innate as sex differences in mating behaviors, that itself is not a human universal because apparently she had discovered a culture uh, where, you know, the men were all tepid about sex. No, 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 I don't want to have sex. I, I want to be chased. I'm speaking now as the man, whereas the women were super aggressive and wanted to have sex. Well, it turns out that that culture does not exist. It was in part her kind of doctoring bullshit and part the the native population that she was studying that was, you know, putting her on. I mean, there's actually a great book called The Faithful Hoaxing of Margaret Mead, which I highly recommend you guys read, uh, that talks about this. So cultural relativism with all of the downstream effects of, you know, holding on to that position, as I said, that, that was spawned 100 years ago. Postmodernism, you know, Michel Foucault, Jacques Lacan, Jacques Derrida, that, that happened, you know, 40, 45, 50 years ago. Uh, you know, militant feminism, you know, we had second wave feminism, 70s, and then, you know, so on. So, so no, I don't think that there was a grand designer that engaged in the machinations to release all of these idea pathogens. But I do think that they came to their apex at around the same time so that the edifices of reason could no longer withstand the tsunami of bullshit that was being promulgated, right? So if we only had cultural relativism, okay, the, the, edifice, the edifice still stands. If we had only militant feminism that says that there are no evolved sex differences, okay, maybe we can deal with that. But you put the whole cocktail of bullshit together and then you start having the lunacy that we have today. I hope that I've answered your question. Yeah, I have further questions, but I, I see other hands, so maybe I'll okay, just wait around. Absolutely. Cheers. All right, looks like we have John Doe back, okay. and then Shukri, and then James. Okay, take it away, John. All right, so, <laughs> oh my God, I wanted to get in earlier, but it's all about culture. Listen, I have, I, I growing up in the, the, the projects of Peoria and then into the slums of Chicago, only to go back to Virginia and North Carolina. And now I'm in Missouri. 
I am a happy man. I don't give a shit about anything. The the people that I grew up with when I was a kid, five black men, two white guys, and one of the white guys didn't make it for the black guys' own businesses across our country. One big in Las Vegas. He owns a uh, a tow truck company. Anywho, um, but. Guys, it's culture that runs everything and anything within America. It is literally, it affects our Constitution. If people don't fucking wake up and realize we are not a democracy, ah, fuck. We're, yeah, I'm going to leave it right there. I love Thank you guys. You. Uh, Brilliant. Yeah, do it. Thank you so much. I, I I do agree that I mean many people think that as a as an evolutionist and as a you know evolutionist psychologist that somehow you know we think that culture is unimportant. And to your point, John, nothing could be further from the truth. I think what evolutionary psychologists do is that we argue that culture exists in its forms because of biology, right? So it's not that we reject the importance of culture. In, in shaping human phenomena, so exactly to your point, but rather we say that to the extent that culture is important, to the extent that culture takes particular forms, why does it take those forms? And of course, the answer ultimately always lies in a, a biological imperative. So, so to the people, I, I know you didn't address it in this fashion, but that's how I'm trying to build a segue. So to the people who think, you know, is something due to culture or to biology are really asking the you know, it's, it's an incorrect and moot dichotomy to, to, to structure the argument that way. There's a great book by Matt Ridley. Some of you may know him, the evolutionary biologist. He's been on my show twice. He was part of the House of Lords in, uh, in, in Parliament in England. Great guy. Uh, and he wrote a book called uh, Nurture by Nature, which exactly speaks to that point, that it, nobody is... Nobody is uh, negating the importance of nurture in shaping human phenomena, but you can't simply ascribe a phenomenon to nurture without explaining why nurture takes that form. So if women prefer certain types of men as ideal mates, well, if you just say, oh, that's just because of they're taught that, but that still begs the question, why are they taught to prefer? Why is there no culture where parents tell their daughter, hey, remember, daughter, what you need to do is look for a pear-shaped guy with a nasal voice who cries at the sight of his shadow, who sucks his thumb while playing video games in mom's basement. That's the guy you should be ascribing, you know, uh, aspiring to, to, to attract. We don't have that in any cultures because it doesn't make evolutionary sense for women to be attracted to such guys. And by the exact same logic, the reason why there are certain universal mate preferences that men prefer in women across all cultures is, again, for evolutionary reasons. So, yes, culture matters, but it, it matters because of evolutionary reasons. So thank you for that, John. Who's next? Um, if I, I hope I'm pronouncing this correct. It's Shukri. And then, John, I see your hand up. We'll circle back to you after James. Thank you. Yes, you got it absolutely correctly. You pronounced it as if you were a native Somali. 
Thank you so oh, much. This is not Hi, Ilhan that... Omar, is it? Oh God, please. <laughs> no, that would be, that would be tragic if you thought of no, me of as Ilhan. Not. And coincidentally, I ran against her uh, for her Congress seat this past election oh, no. year. I, oh, I guess you lost since she's in that seat. Well, yes, I, I wouldn't call it lost, uh, but yes. Well, inshallah, you will win next round. Inshallah, Dr. God, I have a question sure. for you. Um, you know, do you do you feel like that uh, the transgender surgery is um, the lobotomy of the 21st century? <laughs> yeah, I, actually, there was someone before you came that touched a similar issue. Uh, look, I do think that there is uh, a, a real condition called gender dysphoria. Uh, I think, mm -hmm. you know, that has been documented uh, throughout history. Uh, there are some cultures, of course, that uh, revere people who, who exhibit gender dysphoria. What the problem, to your point about the lobotomy, is when you go from gender dysphoric people should exist with full dignity, which I think most reasonable people would say, yeah, of course, sign me up for that, to then saying, well, of course, biological males who identify as women should go into the dressing rooms of women or should be competing in women's sports or uh, should go to the rape center, you know, places where women are. That is a form of lobotomy. So I always tell people, and I mentioned that even earlier in today's talk, I can chew gum and walk at the same time. I can be for the rights of transgender people to live dignified lives without also saying that men too can menstruate. Does that make sense? Thank you. Yeah, that does make sense. I, I, I do have Please. a follow-up, uh, I guess, a statement, Please. if you don't mind me asking. Um, you know, I actually, I'm, I'm very concerned about the state of uh, uh, the psychology uh, world or the medical world in general, uh, but more so um, in the psychology field. I, I was a student of a third year uh, seeking um, psychiatry degree in pediatric and adolescence. I do believe in mental health greatly, uh, both as a combat veteran and as a mom of, uh, with, you know, autistic child. Um, recently, I, after, you know, um, when COVID happened, his um, uh, therapy was disrupted because of the lockdowns. So now I decided to, uh, you know, restart, um, you know, an in-person, um, what do you call, um, visitation. So with this psychologist, I get a form to do an intake form, and what I get is questionnaires of things like, you know, the the child's um, gender at birth, uh, pronouns, what they go right. by as pronouns, what he likes to identify, and these are the psychologists who are supposed to be, uh, you know, the rationale uh, in uh, mental thinking that we expect, um, you know. Um, to be the medical in this field. Um, so for psychology to be a science that studies human behavior, uh, right now it seems that they seem to be morally bankrupt. And how do you trust them even to seek uh, simple, uh, you know, uh, mental health wellness if they are themselves, uh, you know, 
uh, commiserating or 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 what do you call confirming this uh, state of delusion? Um, in, in that sense, it's it, to me it is very concerning um, to even send my child uh, who does not who does not have uh, dysphoria, gender dysphoria, to seek a, a simple uh, you know therapy. Uh, for me, it is important that my children seek some sort of therapy because I'm also, I come from, uh, my children are of divorce background, uh, family background. And I do believe uh, what child's upbringing is like, or especially when they come from, a, you know, uh, a two separate uh, a household setting or, you know, for lack of a better world, uh, a broken family. I believe that it does contribute to their, you know, later life as they get older. So for me, even as young as my children are, nine years old, seven years old, six years old, I did start early on um, after the family separation happened, even with play therapy to give them a safe space to address, uh, you know, whatever they're feeling. Um, But now it's like I'm having a hesitation about the whole therapy thing because it's like these therapists are asking these questions and it tells me their state of mind of, uh, you know, conforming or supporting uh, someone who might be delusional. Yeah, you know, you I mean, it's a it's a fantastic question. I'm sorry that you're going through it. But to your point, uh, I mean, in today's reality, many of the therapeutic issues that you're speaking of deal with, you know, woke ideology. But your point would still hold true even if we removed all the woke, you know, transgender stuff in that many therapeutic approaches are not science-based. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I had decided to not pursue a clinical career. So, and actually, I discussed this in, in the first chapter of, of my forthcoming book, you know, the, the book on happiness, I, I explained why I had decided to, you know, go into consumer psychology, psychology of decision-making, evolutionary psychology. And it was really for two reasons, one of which speaks exactly uh, to your point. So the first reason was, as I said, to your point, that so many therapeutic approaches in the mental health space are completely rooted in quackery even void of any of the woke ideology stuff, right? So think of it this way. In the old Freudian days, if you suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, which is a, it's an organic disease of the mind, right? Uh, they would ascribe that, that disease to you having a schizophrenic mother. You know, she hugged you too much or she didn't hug you enough. And it was completely rooted in quackery, right? Like there was no scientific basis for that other than the parasitic idea that any, you know, mental health problem that you have must be rooted in in the repressed dynamic that you have with your parents, right? So, so to your point, the problem with many of these mental health interventions is that they are completely susceptible to uh, a lack of, you know, scientific evidentiary thresholds that that you must adhere to if you are giving someone a diabetes pill, right? So that's the first reason why I was, uh, you know, suspicious of pursuing because because being very scientifically minded, I just didn't want to, you know, be involved in a. There's a great book, by the way, uh, Shukri, called uh, House of Cards, 
or, or built on House of Cards or something by Robin Dawes. I think it's a 1994 book. I, I cited in my forthcoming book, and and the book, as as you might imagine, you know, House of Cards is that you know it's all tenuous, right? You just remove one card, and the whole mental health profession falls. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't tremendous advances that are science based in in the mental health profession. So take, for example, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, that is actually very much rooted in uh, you know, evidence-based efficacy, you know, uh, studies. As a ma- and as a matter of fact, as I discuss in, in, the, in my forthcoming book on happiness, the ancient Greeks, the, the, the whole Stoic philosophy is, the whole, is a precursor to cognitive behavior therapy. So, so the ancient Greeks were certainly very good clinical psychologists because they already held the secrets to a lot of the mental health, you know, issues that we face. So... So to your point, I think what you what one has to do when they are seek I mean, a, a therapist is a surgeon to your soul, right? I mean, I mean, in a sense, it's a lot easier to cut out your appendix. It's a lot easier to be a you know a mechanic of the body than to be a surgeon of the soul. And that's why I think, you know, you have to be very, very careful when you are, you know, setting up a relationship with a mental health professional because it, in many, many cases, they can uh, delay, if not worsen, your symptoms. Again, this is not an indictment on all of mental health therapy. Of course, there are very, very, you know, uh, valuable uh, interventions that one can can experience. But by the way, and I, I think I, I might have discussed this the first time that Jordan Peterson and I had a chat on my show, because he is a clinical psychologist. I wanted to ask him the following question, which is, it turns out and many of you guys may uh, may or may not be surprised by this, that it turns out that the number one most important variable that you should, that, that predicts whether your therapist will be effective or not. Does anybody want to take a shot and guess what it is? Like, you know, is it is it if they have a, a PhD from Ivy League school? Is it, what, what is the number one, you know, predictor of them being a good, uh, therapist. Any, uh, John, you want to take a shot? You want to answer that? Yeah. I, uh, I'm kind of curious as to why do you need a therapist in the first place? All you have to do is get out into nature a little bit more. How's that sound <laughs> to you? I mean, yes, interacting with nature is certainly a, a, a valuable therapeutic, uh, you know, modality. But in many cases, that may be insufficient. But 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 to mm-hmm. uh, to, to to answer my own oh, there's somebody else. That, sorry, uh, Lily, you want to take a shot? <laughs> well, I would say probably unconditional positive regard. Uh, I mean. Maybe you are what I was going to say, which might correlate with what you just said, if they are empathetic, right? So, so in other words, uh, if your mother, who is not in the least bit trained in, you know, clinical psychology, but is a very good listener, can, can be, you know, can be empathetic, can, you can feel as though she's really listening to you, your mother might end up being a lot more of an effective therapist than the cold, inattentive, uh, you know, uh, dogmatic, uh, insensitive therapist that has a PhD MD from Johns Hopkins. 
Okay. So in other words, uh, so to, to John's point where he said, uh, you know, why don't you just go to nature? I mean, yes, that's nice. You know, going for a nice walk in the, in the wilderness. That's why we have what's called the biophilic instinct. Biophilia is the fancy term for love of nature, innate love of nature. So, of course, that's therapeutic. But sometimes a therapist is needed. Actually, in many cases, what the therapist will do for you is uh, highlight patterns of behaviors that you engage in that you're otherwise unable to connect those dots, right? So for example, you go see the therapist who, who doesn't know you until you go see them and you say, look, uh, my problem is I'm very depressed because I can't seem to find the right man. Uh, and this is really depressing me because I think I deserve love and you know, why am I cursed in, in the field of love? And then through your exploration of, of this issue, uh, you know, that, that therapist finds out that, you know, you've had four relationships with four men that have all failed. And he or she notices that those uh, four men share certain similarities. As a matter of fact, they're kind of co copy-paste versions of each other. And then that therapist might say, well, have you noticed that maybe those particular men have certain commonalities that don't match with you know some of your goals and values and and it might literally be something as simple as that which is a third party putting together all these recurring patterns of behavior in your life that otherwise you hadn't connected those dots so i'm afraid john that while yes going for a nice walk in the forest with your dog is wonderful sometimes you need a bit more than that so there you have it thank you so much for your question shukri and i hope that you're son gets the the help that uh, he deserves thank you so much doctor and i hope that you hold more space oh thank you sir. so much i appreciate it cheers thanks thank you i'll go down as a listener so you have more people to thank come you up so much and speaker. please defeat ilhan omar you need to get rid of her <laughs> thank cheers. you so yeah. much sir we'll try bye bye uh okay so i need to bring in other people okay I'm yeah sorry. so while, while you do that we're gonna our, our lineup now is james lily and then back to John for a follow-up, unless we have people that haven't spoken before. And my answer to your question is going to be that the patient believes the therapist is invested in their success. Yeah. Yes. And, and I mean, wouldn't that ultimately correlate with maybe being empathetic? You, you would think so, right? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. Thank you. Yes. So we're going to go James, then Lily, and then we're going to go... Um, we're going to jump to some new people, Grifty and Tom, and then back to John. All right. So, James, you're up. Okay. Well, thanks, Truth, and uh, thanks for letting me speak again. Uh, this is just uh, a, a great, uh, a great uh, space, Gad. Yeah, I, I think I just want to thank you so much for holding it, hosting a space. Um, I'm uh, I'm going to go see Jordan Peterson next month, and. Uh, um, I would love to see you uh, on a speaking tour uh, within Canada too. I know you do some speaking, but uh, I'm, one of my questions is: Have you ever considered uh, doing uh, a speaking tour like that? And uh, do you do those kind of speaking tours? I know you're going to get out and probably yes. uh, do some work with your book. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Finish your point. Sure. Finish your point. And my, and my other question is: uh, I know, I know how. Um, uh, uh, opinionated. I, I mean that in a very good way. 
you are, and and you work in in academia. Uh, and I know you've, you've you've had some struggles, but I, I wondered if you would would talk about those a little bit. And uh, you know, do you feel like you know at some point you might want to uh, you know move on from Concordia and um, you know move into the you know move it up to a higher level, maybe move to the to the states? A lot of people have done that. So those are the two questions. Uh, thank you. Fantastic questions. I'm curious about. Yes, thank you so much, James. Uh, so question one: Yes, uh, I've never done a organized full tour so what i've done is you know a whole bunch of different folks invite me let's say i was invited to stanford last semester i went usc you know this place that place but i would love i the closest i've come to doing a book tour was a couple of years ago just before covid struck there was a company that wanted to bring me to australia and new zealand for a full australia new zealand tour and as so often happens with these things, and I've had other companies approach me to do book tours, we end up, it ends up falling, you know, uh, by the wayside because we can't agree on, I hate to say it, the money, right? Uh, but absolutely, I want to. Uh, the, the difficulty in my case, uh, James, is that because I'm still a professor, it's very, very hard when you are constrained by your day-to-day professorial duties to go on the types of tours that Jordan is able to do. And so in a sense, once he was able to leave academia, it really freed him. And I mean, this is why, you know, tenure is referred to as the golden handcuffs because there are great benefits to being tenured, right? You're protected and so on. I wouldn't have lasted five minutes if I didn't have the protection of tenure. So yes, that's wonderful. But also what tenure does is it, it it bogs you down for all sorts of reasons. And so, yes, I would love to. And, uh, you know, if I, and I, I addressed this earlier in the conversation when I was talking about, you know, would I ever think about leaving academia? I think that if I could secure uh, a source of income that would, uh, allow me to, you know, potentially reach what I call my escape velocity, then I might leave academia. And I hate to say that because I truly am in, in my DNA a professor and I would hate, I would want to do it all. But if today you ask me whether I'd rather go on a tour uh, in, in 40 cities, meet all sorts of incredible people, speak in front of thousands of people, or be doing what I was doing this morning for four hours when I was grading, then no, I would rather be doing book tours. Not because, and I'm not belittling the importance of being a professor, but there's a lot of uh, mechanics, administration involved with being a professor that I could do without. So long-winded way to answer your question. Yes, I would love nothing more than to, to go on a book tour. I always have a fantasy that Elon Musk or someone who's a fan will come along and say, hey, your brain is too important to be doing grading. How about I give you $10 million so that you can educate the world and do your thing? And so I would love nothing more than that. If there's a billionaire in this uh, Twitter space, I await the generous donation. So that's your first question. Your second question, uh, would I consider going to the United States? Absolutely. Uh, Look, I'm very grateful to Canada. Canada uh, uh, you know, uh, accepted us as war refugees. 
uh, I could never forget that, uh, you know, so I will ever, forevermore be grateful. But there are many, many elements to, I mean, Canada in general and Quebec in particular, that makes it incompatible with me. So let's take the, the least important or less, least uh, philosophical one. I despise the cold. There has never been a human being engineered who despises the cold more than I do. I'm from the Middle East. I'm a beach kid. And therefore, you know, uh, I spend my entire life either uh, ruining the fact that I'm in winter or it is summer and I am panicking that winter is around the corner. So I am perpetually either in winter or worried that winter is coming. That's not how I want to live life. I want to be in a place where I can have, you know, sun and I can be wearing shorts and I can be meeting people outdoors and so on. So uh, so if only that, I'd want to be somewhere in, in the United States that's warm. Of course, Southern California having, it's like a second home. I, I, I live there and so on. I would love to go there. Of course, it scores much higher on the woke meter. So, of course, many people now prefer Florida. I'm not really a Florida guy. I don't like the topography of Florida. I don't like the mosquitoes of Florida. I don't like the tropical weather of Florida. So if you ask me just generally what I prefer, no, I prefer Southern California, but I'm perfectly happy to, to create a happy life in, in Florida as well. So absolutely, it's in the plans, but I'm being even though I don't know many of you here personally, I, I feel like we're in an intimate space, but although I've said this even in more public settings, uh, the thing that ties me to Montreal is, number one, we have family here. You know, my I have family here and my, my wife's entire family is here. But more than anything, it's the fact that, you know, I'm a tenured professor who's entering his 30th year as a professor. It's very, very hard to walk away from that. But if I could have, if tomorrow I could start a locals uh, channel, right, uh, where, you know, you ask for subscription and I could be guaranteed that I'm getting, you know, 5,000 people, 10,000 of my followers who are willing to pay $5 a month to have me do what I'm doing now with you guys, to have me create online lectures for them. And people would truly not, forgive me for saying, most people are completely parasitic, right? They want you, look, I've just spent now three and a half hours. I'm not saying this to, to toot my horn, but I'm perfectly happy to do it. But you would like to think that there is reciprocity. Reciprocity can come in the form of you going and, you know, you know, giving a donation. It could be in ordering my next book, right? But most people want to consume all your content without ever giving anything. If I can be guaranteed that people would actually monetize my time and content, I would be in Florida or California before you can say, hello, sir. So, so yes, it's in the plans. It's difficult to, to instantiate also because we have young children. My wife and I have been together for 23 years. But by, by choice, we only started having children uh, late in our marriage. So we have kids that are, you know, younger than you would have thought there should be, you know, given our respective ages. And so if our children now were adults, then that would make it a lot easier for me to break the bonds of tenure and, and take a risk and move to the U.S. So again, if there are any wealthy billionaires, I await your generous decency. Thank you, James, for that. Those two questions, great questions. Uh, who's next, Aristotle? 
Well, that, that was a good segue, Dr. Sad. So up in the nest, we have a link to the Amazon pre-order for your book. So if anybody looks up in the nest or down in the comments, you can um, link on my post. That'll take you directly to Amazon, and you can pre-order Dr. Sad's book. Um, what, I, what I would request now, we're coming up on three hours, 45 minutes, if um, speakers could keep their questions relatively short so Dr. Sack can get more people on stage. And then after Lily, we're only going to go to people that have not and spoken Aris yet. So Lily, Aristotle, would you be kind enough if you're amenable to it? Uh, it doesn't have to be today, but tomorrow or something. Just write to me privately because I, I feel like there's got to be more than just a, a, a flippant thank you because you truly are godsend. So I, I'd like to find a way to... Uh, Privately, thank you. All you have to do is follow me, and then I can arrange for you to autograph a book that I will buy. <laughs> oh, you jumped on that reciprocity quickly, didn't you? Okay, thank you so much, Aristotle. I really appreciate it. Okay, who's next? L Lily's okay. up next. Hi, uh, yes. I'm just going to ask my follow-up question to my question sure. earlier. And in the spirit of reciprocity, I will definitely be buying your next book. Um, I really enjoyed the last one. So I just wanted to ask because you prior you'd sort of stated that the emergence of those infectious ideas occurred at different times i just feel like there's some similarities between those different uh ideas and ideologies yes. and i'm wondering if you could just um i know they didn't you know begin in in a concerted coordinated effort but i'm wondering why these ideas keep getting sort of selected and does, does that specific subset of ideas imply that people in power would want those specific ideas to be spread in the university? Yes. That's just to yes, follow up with question. my clarification. So I, I, I address that. In, 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 someone posed it in a slightly different way, but it speaks exactly to your question. And, and that is that all of these idea pathogens do share uh, one commonality. And it, that is that, well, first they wish to... Uh, uh, be freed from the pesky shackles of reality, but and then but your next question might be, but why? What would be the what would be the rationale? What would be the logic for why you wish to avoid facing reality? Well, it's because they all start from a noble cause, which then you know gets twisted into a consequentialist murder of truth. So let me let me be. That, that might be too philosophical, so let me be concrete in what I'm saying. So take, for example, equity feminism. Equity feminism is a great idea. I think we could all agree to it. There's no reason, there's no institutional reason or, uh, you know, uh, reason why men and women should not be treated, you know, equally under the law. There's no reason why women should have been barred from going to med school, why today men are discriminated against in universities. Okay, so we, we could all be equity feminists. But then militant feminists came along and said, well, you know, the patriarchy is really, really evil. And the only way that we can ever achieve true parity and squash the sexist patriarchal status quo is if we argue that there are no innate sex differences between men and women, because that then makes the noble goal of squashing the patriarchal sexist status quo easier to achieve. And therefore, we will not... Uh, condone the idea that there are evolved sex differences. Men and women are indistinguishable from each other, and to the extent that there are any differences, it must be due to social construction. That's why social constructivism is another idea pathogen in my book. So 
the, the, so the point to, to summarize your, to the answer to your question is that each of these idea pathogens start from a noble place. So let's take cultural relativism. Cultural relativism was a rebuttal, if you'd like, was a, quote, solution to the misapplication of biology and Darwinian theory by a whole bunch of really nefarious folks, right? So the, quote, social Darwinists, which had nothing to do with Darwinian theory, social Darwinists or the British class elitists said, hey, there's a Darwinian struggle between the, the classes. We're the upper class. You're, you, the losers in the lower class with your tuberculosis and your illiteracy in the slums, that's just the natural order of things. There's a natural Darwinian struggle. Fuck you, you lose. Hey, that's Darwin. That's social Darwinism. Of course, it had nothing to do with Darwinian theory, but, but there was a political usurping of Darwinian principles to a political cause. Eugenicists came along and said, hey, uh, we need to eradicate the possibility for uh, homosexuals to reproduce because then they're going to, quote, pass the gay gene. So let's sterilize all gay people. Hey, that's just a Darwinian thing. That's okay. That's just evolution. That's Darwinian. Of course, they're insane. Then we've got later the Nazis. Hey, there's a natural struggle between races. That's Darwinian. We are the Aryans. Fuck you, Jews. You must be eliminated. That's just Darwinian. That's just the natural order of things. So the cultural relativist said, wait a second. It seems as though a lot of people, there, there is danger to arguing that biology in any way matters when it comes to social affairs. So therefore, let's create new edifices of knowledge, knowledge perfectly rooted in bullshit, whereby biology ceases to matter when it comes to the human condition. Biology matters for the horse. Biology matters for the mosquito and your dog. But surely evolution can't apply to human beings. So in this case, Franz Boas and then his subsequent students, uh, many of whom are otherwise very bright and accomplished academics, existed in this completely parasitic make-believe world where there were no human universals. There is no such a thing as innate human nature. Well, the average two-year-old pigeon knows that that's false, but yet we built those edifices of bullshit. So to answer your question, to kind of wrap it up, all of these idea pathogens start from a noble place, and in the pursuit of that noble goal, they murder truth. I deserve a Nobel Prize for that last explanation alone. <laughs> Thank you so You're much. Here. I really appreciate it. I'll drop Thank down so now. Much, Thank you. Yeah, and then, and Dr. Sad, how what time would you like I to would wrap love, this up? If only because I am getting sleepy, although I'm loving this so much that it's hard to extricate myself from it. Can we do another 10 minutes? Do you think that's that's good? That'll be good. So we're going to go Grifty, Tom, and then Cargo. Um, realizing that Dr. Sad only has 10 minutes, keep your questions brief. And Dr. Sad, I would ask you to keep your responses <laughs> brief as well so we can get all three speak, all, the last okay. three speakers up and we'll put a lid on Thank it. After and then when we get off, when I say goodbye, I just literally press the end button and somehow the whole magic happens. I don't do anything else. And we, we all go okay, away. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Who, so who's next? Take it away. Grifty. Hey, Dr. Sad. Uh, I'll keep the I'll keep the verbal filleting to a minimum, but I do want to thank you and uh, Truth for running this thing tonight. It's it's great to see. Um, 
And I, I, I want to give you a little bit of a shout out. You, you know, you have many well-earned accolades in academia and as an author, but to me, uh, I think you're underappreciated as a content creator online. Um, so I would implore you to start your locals. I know I would be happy to contribute $5 a month um, to that endeavor. Uh, that's so lovely. just that at, the be- that at the beginning. Um, with that in mind, I've been a fan of yours since back in the Gamergate days when I first saw you on Sargon of Akkad's oh, channel and you know, some, of your, some of your early Joe Rogan appearances. Um, so it's in that line that I want to kind of ask you this question. One of the things that originally drew me to you was your explanation of the sneaky fucker, uh, 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 tactic in relation to male feminists back in the day. Um, I, I wonder if the male feminist became such a toxic label after the numerous, documented cases of abuse or harassment or whatever that came kind of in that time of 2015, 2016, I'm wondering if some of this modern transgender movement falls into that same category of these, these weak men who don't have access to, to high value females are now using the transgender label because you don't even have to really commit to the thing. You don't have to go through with the surgeries. You don't have to do any of this stuff, but then automatically that in that same vein is, is that same tactic. I'm, I'm wondering if, if right. you're seeing any of any relation in those so things. The, I, so I don't know the exact, so if we were to break up the pie of different motives, you, you know, or, or, you know, causative agents uh, for the different types of transgender folks. You know, I don't know what would be the slice that might correspond to the sneaky fucker, uh, you know, phenotype. Uh, I think that there is some truth to it. I mean, certainly the guy who says that he's transgender to get access to women in prison, I mean, he may not be doing technically speaking, the sneaky fucker strategy, but he's certainly using uh, the transgender appellation under duplicitous, you know, situations. Uh, I don't think it would be fair to ascribe that to all transgender. I truly think that, you know, gender dysphoria is something that has been documented throughout history. It's a real condition. Uh, Of course, now it it has become a social social contagion where, you know, 20% of kids, uh, you know, suddenly are transgender and so on. That That's just absolutely insane. It can't be. We know that it's well under, way under 1%. So there might be some validity to the fact that a small slice of, quote, transgender folks are using some version of sneaky fucker strategy, but I certainly wouldn't ascribe it to most transgender folks. Thank you so much for your question. Uh, who's next? All right, we're going to go to Tom and then Cargo. And then we wrap it up. Shoot. Yes, sir. Go Hello, on. Dr. Sad. How are you, sir? I am very tired, and I think you are too. So <laughs> I, I'll try to keep my, my uh, blathering to a mere 20 minutes. Oh, and okay. Overrun this. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so I think at one point you released a, a podcast sometime in the last two years, and in that podcast you had referred to a... Um, uh, um, 
a recently published study. Uh, something to do with, I can't recall it off the top of my head, but I did email you. I never got a response, but I was really looking forward to getting, um, uh, I looked into what I thought you had mentioned the journal. So I looked up the journal and I was trying to find through a few recent uh, issues of it to find what study that you had cited. But in the in the podcast, you weren't sure what the title is. If I send you a message or, or like try to dig up that podcast or message that I'd sent you before, do you think it would be possible if you I mean, it, I mean, realistically, you might not even remember even if I can like right. dig it up. Well, first, my apologies for not having answered you to, in that I true if it's usually a substantive email, I try to answer all of them. So really, my apologies. Why don't you in the subject heading say following up on the Twitter space slash reference? then at least that mm -hmm. will cue me that I, because I, I really receive like thousands of, it's, it's hard for, like I really need to have like a, an assistant to, to go through all this stuff. So uh, please send it and I will absolutely do my best to try to follow up. Cheers. Uh, thanks. And I just want to say thanks to Infidel down in the listeners box for uh, bringing me back in here. I, ha I have like a few other like relevant questions that I could ask you, but I'll just leave it there and I'll let, uh, hopefully have a next good night. time you'll come to the next uh, Twitter space thing. Thank you, sir. Take Thank you, care. sir. Cheers. Last question, and then we call it a night. All right. Cargo, you're going to take us home. Dr. Goodlooks. <laughs> nice and, stop and here. Imagine not not all superheroes wear, wear capes. Some of them wear blue hair every once in a while. I was huh? say, Dr. Goodlooks, and you don't even get to benefit from my looks. You only get to be intoxicated by my alluring voice. How's that? That's, a, that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> And what a great job with uh, Aristotle there. Uh, truth be told, what a great job tonight. I've been on oh, since no, this, the beginning. This, you did a really this good guy job. Is, I mean, he's, he's the reincarnation of Aristotle. That's the only way I can explain it. It can't be. Like, he's, he's totally taking over. He's like, he's organizing my home. He's doing my parenting tips. He's, he's booking my flight to Portugal. I don't know where this guy's come from. Uh, I'm keep my name is Take it away. Any questions? No, no, no. Yes, with the paras with the parasite parasitic mind in academia, and we're educating um, teachers that are going down into lower level education. Isn't this just ballooning? Is it, how do we correct this? How do we course correct this situation of this woke culture just seems to be ballooning? I've 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 got your book. I have a fourteen year old son who's read it. We talk about these things kind of extensively, and. Uh, you know, the way he interacts with his friends, he, he, everything's everything that comes out of their mouth, either you're a Nazi or you're a racist or or whatever. And, and these are like 14-year-old kids. You know, every it seems like it's just trickled, trickled down. Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, there, there's really no magic recipe other than a commitment by everyone who wishes to be involved to actually get involved, right? Uh, uh, it really is that simple. Like... There is no sort of metaphysical recipe that I can offer you that can eradicate these idea pathogens. It's a, it's a battle of ideas. And the other camp has some incredibly committed activists who are willing to work day and night to spread this bullshit. So there has to be a counterweight of people who are willing to say, even within their personal lives, when your cousin says something idiotic, challenge them. Not meanly, 
not in an obnoxious way, not impolitely, not violently, but simply never walk away from an opportunity to engage others. And I think if we do that at every level, to, with your professor, with your school administrator, with the principal of your kid's school, and on and on and on, then we will see the autocorrection taking place. There is nothing else that can... That's like kind of saying, I'd like to win a physical war, except I don't want any of my soldiers to go into battle. I only want three people. I want Joe Rogan, Gadsad, and Jordan Peterson to go to war. Well, guess what? We're going to lose that war. I'm talking now physical war. We need two million men and women to step on the battlefield. It's the exact same thing here. I think a lot of people are dissuaded because they think that they don't have the clout or the necessary influence for them to affect change. And as I explain to people, that's simply the wrong way to look at it. If, if, if the only people that should participate in the battle of ideas are Tucker Carlson and Joe Rogan, then the rest of us are going to be twiddling our thumbs as we are led to the abyss of infinite lunacy. So, you know, find your spine. I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to everybody together. Find your testicles. You have a voice. It's important. Speak out in unison. And I guarantee you there will be the necessary autocorrection and we will return to an age of reason. And on that very optimistic note, I would like to take this opportunity first to thank you all for being here. My God, this was fun. It doesn't even feel like it was four hours. It feels like it was four minutes. Number two, Aristotle, you are God sent. If I weren't already married and if I liked women that have penises, then I would ask you to marry me. But I'm already married. You seem to be married. So maybe we could just be friends. How's that? Does that work? I, I'd be honored to be your friend. And again, up in the nest, there is the direct link to Amazon to pre-order Dr. Sad's book. The quicker you pre-order it, the more sales he gets on day one that moves him up the bestseller list. And if you could please retweet that link as well to all of your followers, it would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much, Aristotle. You guys are an absolute delight. I'm honored to have such incredible fans and supporters. And uh, I, I, I'm now excited to have the next one. I can't wait. I might have to wake up at four in the morning and do another one. Thank you so much, guys. Cheers. Thank Take you. Care, guys. Good night.